step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Years ago, H.G. Wells visualized roads such as these in his science fiction fantasies. And today they're a reality. You're listening to the Afternoon Commute. John Adams. And Chris Kendall. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Afternoon Commute with Chris Kendall and John Adams. Today is May 17th, 2016. If you'd like to hear previous episodes of the Afternoon Commute, you can go to hoaxbusterscall.com. And you'll find those posted up there alongside the most recent episode of Chris's Monday Night Broadcast, the original Hoaxbusters Call. Also posted up there are various articles and videos. Some of those are original in nature, so make sure you check those out. For any and all things Hoaxbusters, go to hoaxbusterscall.com today. Mr. Kendall, how are you today, sir? I'm doing well. It's a little bit damp and wet in Oklahoma, but, uh, or Lawton, but, uh, other than that, it's nice and cool and uh, enjoying it. And yeah, not too bad. Good. Good. Yes, uh, we've had some rain here as well. Very nice. And uh, you've been a busy fellow. I've been a busy fellow. I was supposed to have an HBC special report uh, done this week, but putting some finishing touches on that before we release it. So. In the meantime, um, we can have a visit from our good friend, Mr. Jay Dyer from jaysanalysis.com as he uh, joins us on a monthly basis, and it's always a good time uh, talking to him. And actually, this will mark a uh, one-year point that we've actually been talking to uh, Jay. Um, I was just thinking about, actually, that the first time I heard Jay um, before I contacted him, I think he was on a podcast. Uh, it was called, uh, what was that one? Um, I think it was called I Heart Hitler Aliens Podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, no, no. It was, it was called uh, Red Ice Radio. That's what it was called. Yeah. Anyways. Um, uh, yeah. So I heard him on Red Ice Radio, and uh, he was talking about the Frankfurt School, and uh, I liked what he had to say. And um, we were lucky enough to um, have him on uh, for... A, a year now, and I've been enjoying his articles and his audios. And uh, he always uh, gives a shout out to Hoaxbusters uh, when he's uh, tweeting and doing all sorts of uh, other social media, and we're thankful for that. So, uh, Mr. Dyer, how are you doing, sir? Good to have you with us again. Doing well, and I have Jamie Hanshaw with me here, and we are looking forward to talking to you guys today. So, what a a lot of interesting stuff passing around the ether web today and the last few days since we've talked and so I'm sure we'll get into that. I don't really know what, what topics you guys wanted to do, but we're here. We're ready to go. Doing well. Right. And uh, Jamie uh, was just on with Chris and I uh, two weeks ago and we discussed her book, uh, Weird Stuff, uh, 
you can also find at Jay's analysis. I just want to mention too, Jay's got a book coming out in June, uh, Esoteric Hollywood, so you can pre-order that. And um, yeah, I got to actually the full PDF was sent to me today. I got to see that for the first time. So really exciting. It looks looks great. It looks like it's going to be added bonus 363 pages, not 300 pages originally. So you're getting 404 stellar footnotes in 363 pages. Uh, a lot of neat, fancy pics. Jamie, you saw it. What do you think? It looks incredible. That's yeah, it really looks good. really good. Oh, cool. That's good. That's what is the good. title once again? Esoteric Hollywood. Uh, alien, uh, alien bunny, bunny ranch girls from Planet XXX dildo. No, that's a that's Steve Quayle's book, not yours. Oh, Planet oh. Triple X dildo. Yeah. Well, I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The. Uh, yeah. Esoteric the. Uh, yeah, you get a free bag of esoteric popcorn when you order it now. You get three squirts of esoteric butter you get three glugs of butter whoa that's weird i'm not saying how it comes in the book <laughs> it may just ooze out you'll find out <laughs> uh, um yeah you, so um you were uh doing a review of weird scenes inside the canyon by dave mcgowan um yeah uh, that was a good review. I listened to that. I read it as well. And, um, yeah, we've talked a little bit about uh, Laurel Canyon 60s counterculture. And um, Mr. McGowan uh, was a guest on the afternoon commute, sadly, only one time. I had corresponded with him through email since 2011. What was funny was, I don't think I ever told the story, he never made the connection that I was the same guy. So when, like, he, <laughs> I, I kept emailing him to come on with Chris and I. And he never responded to my emails. And then, like, two months later, he responded to an email that I had sent two months before. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to come on. And then, like, we start talking to him, like, before the call, like how we do. And I'm all, oh, yeah, you know the emails about the Black Dolly and all? He's all, oh, you're the same guy? <laughs> That's pretty yeah, I funny. I, um, I was a little confused originally when I started listening to you guys because I, I could I didn't understand the setup. I was like, "What? There's two shows here, or one show?" Or I'm not dissing you. I just it took me uh, a little bit of listening before I got the rhythm. Oh, you mean yeah, like what, the Monday, the Monday in the afternoon commute? Yeah, I didn't figure that out for a long time. I was like, "Is this because John is literally driving his car down the road, reading out of books and talking on the phone at the same time." <laughs> So I said, uh, just wait till Mark Furman sees him and pulls him over and beats the crap out of him. <laughs> well, the good thing about this interview is we can actually confirm that Jay and Jamie are not being played by the same actor. Not anymore. That, that was now that, as I was telling Chris last night, there's a synthoid replacement of me. I can be in more than one place at one time. Yeah. Or you're. Really or he or Jay is actually because we talked to Jamie and you know Jamie's very feminine so I I you know I don't think she can pull off a deep voice but you're good at impressions I think you can pull off a female voice so that's what I think it's what's really going on. There's only one female voice I can do and it's a very rare special occasion when you get to hear my impression of Cher. <laughs> I'm not kidding I, I actually do Cher. 
Uh, but it's a very, very rare occasion. Once in a blue moon, the alignments have to be right. It's a Ziggy conjunction of sun and moon and stars. <laughs> and you might hear it. Does that count as a female voice? I don't know. Exactly. Are you, as she has you a sing, masculine voice. Do you sing, do you sing if, he, if I could turn back time? Is that what you think? He, I, I can do the, uh, what's that awful one from 2001 or two where she's, do you believe in life after love? Yeah, that one. <laughs> but he can't. He can't. If we're going to take it back to Laurel Canyon, then he, he'd have to do. Uh, and the beat goes on. But uh, yeah, uh, Laurel Canyon. You were uh, talking about that, and um, I'm th- I think Chris and I, like a couple of years ago, we we talked about that a little bit. But um. um do you want to go ahead and get into a little bit of what you were talking about on your uh, review of, of uh, weird scenes and tell us uh, what you've learned from that? Like, did you not know a lot yeah. about that? Oh, did you not really know a lot about that uh, with the sixties music scene and all that? No, you know, I mean, everybody who reads Jay's analysis knows that, you know, I'm much more tuned into the film stuff because I've always been, I don't know, uh, had an affinity for, for film and movies. And so I didn't really know a lot about music industry and that whole angle of it. Uh, certainly I have interest in all that topic, but I heard Dave, you know, a year and a half, two years ago on red ice, I think for the first time. And I thought, well, that's a neat interview, uh, that I have to check out that guy's work. But I kind of filed it away and didn't think much about it. And then he popped up on somebody else's podcast uh, around that time. Then I heard him with you guys. And then I heard him with Tim Kelly. So after about three or four interviews, I thought, I got to get, get this guy's books. And so I got Weird Scenes, read it in when I was down in uh, Florida a few months ago, and then got programmed to kill. And about halfway through that one, and then I got the PDF of Wagging the Moondoggy, which I've read half of that in the last few weeks. So... I was really impressed with, you know, his approach and unbeknownst to me, I had nothing to do with it. It's all algorithms. Uh, you know, Amazon puts my book with his book. So if you, they do that thing, you know, where you buy one, get the other one for $35 together or whatever. So I think that's, I'm kind of honored. I'm honored that my book would be stuck there. And I think they're a good pair because, uh, even though Dave deals with more of the, nuts and bolts of what's going on in this specific scene. Uh, my book isn't really about scenes. It's, you know, it's more about symbolic scenes, I guess you could say in film and different movies. And so what, what you're going to, I'm not just plugging my book. We'll get back to Laurel Canyon, but so you're basically going to get, you know, in my book, a chapter on or a sec, excuse me, a section on Kubrick, a section on David Lynch, a section on Hitchcock a section on 007, in a section on the eighties and Spielberg. And, you know, I, I kind of try to look at those decades and those seminal directors and what messages are under the surface that we're getting through those films in terms of, you know, what predictive programming or whatever terms you want to use for, uh, you know, what's really going on in the real world, the real, real world, not the synthetic real world of the mainstream media. Uh, and Dave's compliment is, or Dave's book is a great compliment to that because he you know, deals with the mainstream perspective of what everybody thinks the 
sixties music counterculture revolution uh, phenomena was, was about that. It's not about that. And I think the first thing that stands out, uh, well, there's, I guess you could say two main points from Dave's book. And I want to encourage everybody that, you know, this is not like a replacement for his book. It's, it's really something that you'd have to get and read. And it just kind of intuitively, I think makes sense. It makes a lot more sense than the mainstream stories of the hippie revolution and all this, because number one, the families of the people involved are all pretty much establishment families, not every single person, but you know, big names, Jim Morrison, Zappa, you know, their, their fathers are military biowarfare or Gulf of Tonkin <laughs> uh, actors, so to speak in, in the theater of war. And so, you know, from there, the other great point that Dave makes early on in the book is that if these people were genuinely counterculture, they would not have been given airtime, TV time, uh, magazine, print, uh, full page spreads constantly rolling stone, uh, feature presentations, uh, and major record deals. Right. I mean, the establishment would not have propelled them to iconic status if they did not fit in some way into the social engineering apparatus, which is really what the point was, I think, of all these these uh, revolutionary bands, so to speak. And you can find, even though Dave doesn't really deal with Tavistock, you can look at Be- the Beatles and you can find connections to you know, Tavistock Institute and the idea of the British invasion and uh, when you complement all of that with the material, John, that you've done with the punk scene, which I think is a great, also, also a great compliment to, to Dave's book. And what I know, uh, I'm not an expert in this region or anything, but in the techno trance electronic scene, which Dave's book actually ends with a brief discussion of new wave, uh, you know, the eighties phenomena of uh, new wave and synth pop and how that, um, also, you know, has CIA foundations uh, in terms of its origin. It's not an organic movement. And what I think you see, you know, in, in, as a setting, income uh, connection to what you were pointing out with the punk scene, also the same pr- uh, patterns there, is that you start to see that it's the culture industry is what this is all about. And the culture industry exists not as Marxist per se, but as a corporate backed strategy, a statist backed strategy for large scale social engineering, because the pop culture of the UK and America exists to be propagated on a global scale. And that includes all forms of mass media and entertainment, whether it's music industry or film, it exists to be spread globally and that's that's really the the central thesis here i think of all of the analyses that that we have here dave's book my book uh in your work john and uh, what chris talks about is we're all kind of on the same page that these large scale social changes that occur are not organic they're not just happenstance they're not just oh one damn thing after another it's long term business plan social engineering, think tank, NGO strategies to uh, reorganize and and, um, basically, I would say, ultimately, to use Arthur Kessler's terminology, it's alchemy. It's it's the science of altering man 
to fit the stratagems of the global elite. And ultimately, of course, that's all anti-human. We know that. That's the end goal. Uh, But to get to that end goal, that final point, that terminus, the telos, requires stages of revolution, breaking the mold of the old way of living, the old taboo. And it doesn't even mean that the old way of living was perfect or right or the best. It just means that this is the necessary stage in, in alchemy. The dictum is solve et coagula. You have to dissolve a thing to remake a thing. And that's what it's all about. I agree. I absolutely agree. And um, I think with the hippie thing, you know, Chris and I've discussed this. It was so the opposite of what, you know, 1950s, 19, early 1960s America was. Yeah. And so it came in like, you know, to the youth, it was something new. It was something vibrant. And then to the old, it achieved the, uh, you know, the antagonistic aspect of it, which you need the opposition in order to make the youth believe in it more. And so I think as time goes on, you know, people who look into these types of things, who, you know, listen to our podcast or go to your website or read your book um, or read Jamie's book. It's um, like that becomes easier to spot over time. Yeah. That, that, you know, oh, this, this is, this is something, you know, ridiculously, obviously fake. It's obviously a fake front. Obviously Lady Gaga is not a self-made, uh, you know, singer who rose at the top by the sweat of her brow. Um, and so when you go back and you look at this uh, culture creation from the 60s, you can actually go at, you can actually go back to the 50s and see the culture creation. The one, the one I always like to point out, because it's, it's, it's so obvious uh, after the fact, and you're, you're talking about a person who used to have their identity synonymous with music. Like, I used to consider music part of my identity when I was younger. Yeah, I was the same way, but with, uh, with film, I mean, I wanted to be an actor, comedian or director. And, you know, that was the, the, uh, vicarious way that I lived out what I wanted to be was through film. Right. Yeah. Same, same thing with me playing in bands and, you know, studying music and, you know, knowing who the bass player was on this recording and all that stuff. I put, put all my effort into that. And then, um, it was pretty, it was pretty funny because I'd started started to get away from that. And, um, in 2008 was when Dave, uh, put out his, uh, articles and it, it just hit me because I'd actually read all those books that, that Dave references in, uh, in his articles and in his book, uh, Michael Walker's Laurel Canyon and Barney Hoskins Hotel California and California Dreaming and uh-huh. Waiting for the Waiting for the Sun, all those books. And I was reading this article. I'm going, I don't remember any of this stuff. Like, <laughs> and I realized that because I was a consumer and I was a you know a deep consumer and a fan of music, that actually had blinded me to even though I knew you know stuff about, you know, the new world order or the counterculture being 
co-opted by the CIA or something like that. I yeah. still never thought like, oh, the music is actually part of that too. And so here's an interesting thing I wanted to bring up was, um, uh, you know, the first quote unquote rock and roll song was rock around the clock by Bill Haley and his comments. And I know you guys are not, uh, too, not so young uh, that you don't remember that song getting played on the radio. And, um, uh, the interesting thing about that is Bill Haley was not a teenager. He was an old man when he became a pop star, when he came like became the first pop star and the Bill Haley and his comets used to be called Bill Haley and the Saddlemen because they were a country band. Yes. And they basically got selected to, to make this song into a hit and they kind of like, if you see the old the old rock and roll films where they were uh, selling this stuff to the teenagers at the time, they tried to make Bill Haley look like a teenager. Like they put him in like a, like a leather motorcycle jacket and like, like pompadoured his hair a little bit and tried to make him, you know, look hip. Um, but basically it was, Hey, we need, we need some older, more experienced musicians to make this song sound good. And then from that, the, you know, the, the, uh, phenomenon went on from there and you, uh, were able to get, you know, you was involved in making this type of music. And then by the time the sixties came on, it was the same thing. Uh, if you go to all of those recordings of those songs, you know, uh, whether it's the monkeys or, um, the birds or any, any of those uh, bands, those are all older musicians playing in the studio. Those aren't those yep. young guys that, that everybody thinks that it is. It's, it, you know, it's, it's actually Glenn Campbell playing on the bird stuff. It's, you know, it's not uh, Roger McGuinn. Yeah. Well, this is something Jamie knows about because as you guys have just, J- Jamie's very musically talented and she has written you know, extensively about the pop stars and discussed. We've had many conversations about how you know, the music industry is not what everyone thinks. And it, it just like with Hollywood, people think that it's one thing and it's actually something very different. And so the, the studio productions and even, and especially nowadays, it's all synthesized loops. You, you don't even have to have musicians playing uh, you know, the actual music, it's, it's an, it's a clip from, you know, 10 years ago, somebody doing a, a drum beat that was recorded and it's just, uh, you know, it's all done digitally. So, you know, you don't even need talent anymore. Right. And you've got the auto tuning and all that. And so the pop stars, uh, you know, some of them, of course, I, I'm sure have musical talent. Jamie would know better about that with who actually has a good voice, but for the most part, the, the pop star is kind of the packaging sex symbol that you stick out there, you know, to be on the cover of the CD and to go out and, you know, shake her butt on stage. She's not really the music at all. This is all just some computer digitally created thing. So in other words, we're actually like a whole level beyond the way it was with the Laurel Canyon stuff. And I'm not trying to get away from Laurel Canyon, just pointing out that it's even more ridiculous today in terms of being synthetic. And uh, this was the point that she and I were making in our podcast uh, about B movies is that when you look at the pop stars, it, they're really kind of like the junk food of 
of music. You know, what, what junk food is to food, the pop stars are kind of the junk food of music. Well, and think about how many pop stars have their Pepsi endorsements or yeah. other junk food like that. Like they market them the same way. Yeah, they have all the ty- product tie-ins and yeah, it all goes hand in hand. And then so. every pop star is going to have their perfume line first to get that poison in the air and then their clothing line and on and on, you know, their brand is what they're trying to build up basically their name brand on everything. You mean the Nicki Minaj perfume is not good? No, dude, I get nauseous when I walk through the perfume aisle at the department store. (laughs) All that stuff is toxic, hormone interrupting and... Yeah. Well, if you squirt Nicki Minaj perfume in the into the air along with Missy Elliott perfume, it actually smells pretty good. It smells <laughs> there's a there's a there's a slight waft of booty in it, but it still <laughs> smells pretty good. Well, this one time I was at Kohl's and I saw the uh, the Justin Bieber perfume, right? And the bottle is totally shaped like a phallus, and there's this springy thing on it that's there for no reason that moves up and down. <laughs> And I even took a picture of it because it was so suggestive of this is how you get the perfume out is you kind of have to stroke it out. So basically the entire, all of it is, everybody knows about sex and advertising, but it's basically just most degenerate stuff to appeal to the basis desires on one level for consumerism. But what most people don't get is what you and I and we all get is the fact that it's also large scale social engineering. And that's the, the great point that Dave brings out about the 60s counterculture revolution is that he kind of he kind of takes away that hero status of these people, especially if you're, you know, Jim Morrison. I mean, if you can even even if you watch uh, Oliver Stone's uh, film, The Doors, I mean, there's even hints in Stone's film, which is pretty tame, you know, as to what's actually going on here, because you know, there's one scene I recall. It's been some years since I watched it. But there's a scene where. They've got, you know, Val Kilmer's there playing Jim Morrison. They're like, uh, yeah, we're going to actually just take a bunch of pictures of you and make you into a sex symbol. <laughs> well, not only that, the, uh, the icons that they give you from this era as some sort of um, idealized peace and love and, and revolution thought, these people were not very nice people in real life. A lot of them were wife beaters and family deserters and child abusers. And, you know, Jimi Hendrix it has been purported to beat women on many occasions and John Lennon as well. Yeah. It's all this image, image making and, and manufacturing. And, um, there's a, a part of it was a documentary. It's kind of a locally done documentary when I was out visiting San Diego and, uh, they were talking about the photographer of, uh, the doors and, um, uh, I think mama's papa's and all these different bands, and how, you know, he was this really talented photographer that just kind of happened to fall in with all those people and just happened to just like heavily document <laughs> their yeah, life right. and everything. And it just, yeah, just so happened to kind of all fall together that way. Like he was, he had some other kind of job that he ended up kind of photography on the side and then photography became his main thing. And it, I've been listening to it and it sounds very like a contrived, very sort of contrived sounding story, but, um, 
just like George Lucas happened to be at the Altamont Music Festival, the Rolling Stones, and he happened to be there in production on a documentary that happened to catch the death of the guy <laughs> on the yeah. hands of the Hells Angels during the Gimme Shelter song. Or yeah, who by yeah, the way... That, 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 death, that death's pretty questionable. Uh, tell him, Chris, about the gravestone. Yeah, he doesn't have a... He doesn't have one, that's the thing. And he doesn't have a... Uh, there was a guy that tried to do a documentary on that and it was documenting, okay, because no, okay, who's this guy that got killed? You know, um, I can't think of his name, but anyway, so he went and tried to, you know, do some background, background digging on this guy. And, and then it turns out he's like, okay, there's no, there's very sparse information in the newspapers and then there's no burial plot and no headstone. Yeah. We were, we were discussing that same principle of early viral marketing, I guess is what you could call it, which I don't know if this is true, but we were speculating that, you know, if you think about the film Ben-Hur, the big mythology around that film was that when Cecil B. DeMille was creating the gladiatorial scene, somebody is actually killed uh, with the horses running over the guy. Now, I don't know whether it's true or false, but that's the story. And how many people do you think went and saw the movie because you're able to, quote, see a guy die in the gladiatorial scene? Now they're saying he died for real. Wizard of Oz, too. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stories like this about big oh, movies. Yeah, yeah. That, that uh, you know, there was the story of the girl on the set of uh, Poltergeist 2, um, the, the little blonde girl dying during the production of Poltergeist 2, uh, Cecil B. DeMille. Remember, Jason Lee is suddenly, is supposedly shot during the filming of The Crow 2 or 3 or whatever. Uh, Brandon, Brandon Lee, Brandon Lee, excuse me. Um, and, uh, the set piece gun has a real bullet in it. Well, that doesn't make much sense, but you know, (laughs) could it be a real hit? Yeah. I don't know, but I'm just saying these things also propel the, the film. And another thing you'll notice too, which I point out in my, that Laurel Canyon talk was the, when Mackenzie Phillips came out to talk about the incest situation, there was, she had a book coming out and her sister had an album coming out. <laughs> uh, when uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin divorce and they're all in the news, it's right before Coldplay's new album. So what I'm getting at is that it's very difficult to know when all of these things are uh, PR created event. We just don't know, right? I mean, there's no way to know, but it works because it, the public goes along with what the consensus reality is. And they assume that the media is telling the truth and things are the way that it's presented. And they don't realize that there's a whole marketing angle involved in all this, not to mention, of course, the big scale social engineering, but, but yeah. Maybe well, we, can note, expect, we, we can expect a new Black Sabbath album because Ozzy and Sharon divorced after 33 years. <laughs> well, John, that uh, audio you sent to Jay and myself about the, uh, they were talking about, um, uh, yeah, were, were, the, were those two guys talking about Laura Canyon and stuff? Uh, and then the dude brought up that when, so when Prince died, the day he died, there was a, like a fragrance that yeah. was released the day of called purple rain, like, in, but not rain, <laughs> like in rain, but like rain as in like rule. And it, and, uh, 
And then he brought up somebody inter interesting about the color purple. Like if you take purple and you break it down, okay, you got blue and red mixed purple. And then that's the Republican and Democrat parties in the United States. And I said, yeah, that's, yeah, that very possibly could be coding right there. And that does make sense. The, the red and the white and then, or I mean the red and the blue, and then you combine the two and that's America's colors and you combine the two and they, they turn royal purple. So it's, it's, it's the, iteration of the you know british empire and the royal rule just taken and reconfigured and then broken down into two separate uh you know the dialectic breaking down into the two supposedly separate political parties I, it's like I, no i never thought about that before so yeah that guy i think he made well, up pur point. Purple, purple is the real color of royalty because it's the symbol of the dawn that's why you have that song from the big band era called uh in the deep purple dawn because uh, purple is the color of the dawn. It's the dawn of the new day, I guess. And that's why uh, I think the Caesars were the ones who started wearing purple for that particular reason. And the robe kind of symbolizes like the rising, you know, like a, like the sun coming up over the horizon. Are you guys familiar with that occult symbolism? Uh, roughly, because, yeah, it does actually tie into... Um, not to get too far afield, but there is similar symbology in the idea of liturgical vestments that uh, the priests of different uh, church traditions wear. There is some semblance with what you're talking about. So, yes. But you would have, for example, uh, the... Most societies prior to the modern era, you know, they had some form of class or caste system. And so the Vatican, for example, would always write in what's called the royal we. And that means that, that it's royalty and the church, the princes of the church being the bishops, who would write in what's called royal we. We decree thus, we speak thus, uh, in the same fashion as the way the, the princes and kings would write in terms of, you know, royal decrees or whatever. Uh, and so the uh, outfits that are worn are also symbolic in many ways and have uh, a significance as to, you know, signifying the class that you wear. So I have a buddy in, in the UK who says, you know, it's still the case uh, that you don't wear plaid unless you're upper class. So, you know, the, the average guy doesn't wear plaid. It's, it's not, it's taboo. It's, it's not, uh, you, you can't wear plaid. Uh, now people probably, you know, don't really pay attention to that much nowadays, but at least for traditional British people, they, they believe that, you know, that's part of their tradition. So, um, yeah, there's all kinds of things like that. I mean, I'm actually from, uh, clan Maxwell and clan Scott and, you know, we have our, uh, tartans, we have our, our clan patterns that signify the clan that we're from. And so I knew you, I knew you were related to Jordan Maxwell. Uh, yes, Jordan Maxwell. Do your homework, and you'll find out that the tartan, the the Scottish tartan, is actually the ancient skin from the pterodactyl. It's the skinned pterodactyl. <laughs> when it's left out in the sun, it will actually dry out into a tartan pattern. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you, you know, Mac. I don't think he's right about everything he says about the uh, 
the reason judges wear black is because they're priests of Saturn. I don't think that's true, but it is true that this, that the robes and outfits that are worn, you know, that's the classic, you know, imagery of sim- symbolically signifying your, your level in, in society. Sure. Hello. So you don't think they're the priest of Sat- Saturnalia? I, I, yeah. Like, how do you get confirmation on a lot of this stuff? It's just like that. What I just got through bringing up. I mean, I, that sounds plausible, and I think there's there's probably truth to that. I think there is color coded and color code, and then you know symbology and logos and and all and 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 um you know in the in in the flag and all that that. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a it has a, a esoteric es, es, and then a eso uh, esoteric Ex- meaning yeah. and an ec- exoteric meaning, I guess. Right. right. Yeah. So, well, one uh, reason I don't go that into that kind of stuff too far is because a lot of times these things can be uh, multi layered or they can have multiple significances. So, for example, the eye. I mean, that has been used as a Christian symbol before. Uh, just to signify divine providence, right? So it's an eye that, that signifies the notion of one God who knows all, right? And I don't think right. that every case that that's been used, it was intended to be a Luciferian or a luminist because, for one, it predates both the Illuminati and modern, you know, British masonry. Right. So I don't think... Now, does it go back to Egypt? Yeah, but so does the Ankh, right? So if Coptic Christians use the Ankh, to signify life and, you know, the cross, does that mean that every instance of the Ankh is uh, Egyptian mystery religion? No, not necessarily. Right. Just depend. I mean, symbols can have, they can also sometimes be so prevalent, like an eye. That, I mean, there's eyes everywhere, right? It's a, it's a basic human. It's one of our fundamental aspects of, you know, human anatomy. Yeah. When and, I went to art school, they, the the the, te- the illustrator uh, teacher in the illustration class was was talking about that very same thing. He said, you know, you you see the eye a lot because, um, you know, it, human beings are 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 you know, uh, in, inherently respond to the shape of the human eye. You know, something that right. it, it's just yeah. But so there's yeah, no, no, nothing necessarily nefarious about uh well seeing an eye on something. Another uh error that I think people make in symbology or semiotics is that they will go to an occult source. And if the occult source says that symbol X, Y, Z means ABC, then it must be so. And that's not true. So for example, you can find Masons claiming that Dante was a Mason. Now I've read Dante and I have a decent understanding of, you know, esoteric concepts and ideas, but Dante was not a Mason. (laughs) But they will claim pretty much any great man from history was a Freemason. Now, this is just part of their mythology that they, you know, utilize to, ah, you see, you you know, all of those uh, Egyptian pyramids, you see, we built those, right? Which is not true. Uh, Now, there was probably, there was a mystery religion in Egypt, but that doesn't mean that there's some historic succession to modern, you know, Shriners down at the lodge or something. I just, I don't buy that at all. And I've read enough of Albert Pike and different Masons to, I can tell when they're not being faithful to things that I see in 
other historical records that would contradict them. So I've read enough Dante to understand that I don't think he, he, so why will they, so why would they say that? Well, so in Dante's day, there was a really corrupt, um, cast of, uh, people in, in, in the, amongst the Florentine elite who were ruling things. And some of these people got into offices in the papacy. And so Dante throws some of them into hell in his work, right? In the Inferno. Now, does that mean that Dante wasn't a Catholic and was some sort of crypto Mason? No, I don't think so. Uh, I just think that he was uh, calling out the corruption that he saw as a man of his times. Uh, and yeah, he believed in some esoteric things, but as did everybody in that era. You know, the the astronomy and the astrology and the alchemy and chemistry of that day were all one. They were all combined. They were viewed to be the same thing. So that doesn't mean that everybody in those eras was some sort of dark occultist. That's ridiculous. Um, and they'll do the same thing with Thomas Aquinas. The Masons will say, well, Aquinas was a secret Mason. Well, I've read a whole bunch of Thomas Aquinas, and there's absolutely no reason to believe he was a Freemason. That's utterly ridiculous. But the, the people will do that kind of same, uh, I guess you could call it, uh, you know, genetic fallacy or fallacy of origins or something, where if one guy, if a person who's a Mason says this symbol means this, then it always must have meant that to all people. When I think to properly understand symbols or semiotics, you have to know the context and the intention. So the, the which is not always easy to determine, but I, obviously, but I think you can get a rough outline of, you know, well, what was the mindset of this person? What did they believe? And do we have enough evidence to figure out, you know, why they were, what they intended with this symbol? Because it may not have been what, you know, some Mason 700 years later thought the symbol meant. Yeah. It's like the, the whole word parsing or word, word sculpting thing. It's like, what, how do you get any kind of confirmation? Yeah, on the what most ridiculous part of that is that they'll take English words and try to derive these esoteric meanings for concepts that are completely foreign to English. <laughs> yeah. Like you can't take, or like the Masons will take Solomon, Saul, Om, on, and they'll split that up into three syllables and read these uh, pagan deities into Solomon's name. That's not what Solomon's name means. It means Shalom. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. yeah. It has nothing to do with uh, the uh, English uh, anglicization of the word and dividing up the syllables of the anglicization of the word. That's just preposterous. The three names of the sun. Yeah. But the three names of the sun in Hebrew and ancient Hebrew are not <laughs> the three names. Uh, they, they're not the same thing as Shalom. Or Israel. No, obviously, obviously, soul is Latin. Exactly. That's why it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so if you ran across this book here, it's, the films of the eighties, the social history by William J. Palmer. I have not, but it sounds really, uh, yeah, it's happening to run across it. And I'm looking at it, this chapter here, cause it's talking about the Vietnam war. That's kind of what we're going about the Laurel Canyon. And that, that, that's kind of the, you know, well, that falls in that time period. And then this is all, you know, a res- response or reactive reaction to the, you know, allegedly reaction to the, well, that's how it's presented to uh, the, Official narrative is how um, all the hippie free love movement and all that came about. But uh, yeah, it's going into this book about 
the films of the eighties, you know, that came out that dealt with the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. I was going to like read part of this, like, uh, so it's going into like, okay. So, so the, toward the end of, you know, like, like late seventies, you know, they had the coming home, the deer hunter apocalypse now going on like into the eighties yeah. and then hamburger Hill and metal Jack, full metal jacket, all these different Vietnam war films. And I was thinking about, okay, I mean, as far as how this expresses itself on, in a, in a, in a social context, like this, um, you know, this experience this Vietnam war experience, you know, this, uh, uh, and then you have these young men generally speaking are the ones that go into these wars and then they come back and then they have to adapt back into society and culture. But yeah, this idea of promoting, um, like nihilism, you know, the, into the culture, like coming out and bringing this mindset, the out coming out of a, a war scenario and uh and that's and it goes into this a little bit in this uh paragraph here say so what's in what's important about this symbolic nihilist third phase of the vietnam war films it's, you know he's talking about going in you know the, the third phase like the full metal jacket and those uh type films that kind of dealt directly with the war itself and um it, uh, yeah, so what's important about the symbolic nihilist third phase of the Vietnam War films is that, except for Gardens of Stone, all the films are set in Vietnam in the war. Uh, the consensus that all these films arrive at is that beginning in the Vietnam War occasion an almost complete annihilation of the former civilized moral self, just as the circumstances of the war itself have, had accomplished a complete annihilation of the participants' grasp of reality, morality, or sanity. As Conrad wrote in that, in, about Africa and Heart of Darkness, Vietnam was a world where everyone had kicked loose of the earth, quote unquote, and was operating with, quote unquote, no restraint. Symbolic nihilism is a representation of, or a dramatization of an individual or a group's individual's gradual movement into a void in which all positive aspects of the self, all powers of self-determination and control of action and context are not simply temporary loss, but rather are so totally annihilated that the self no longer believes in any context no longer hopes for any progress towards any of the ideals, moral designs, social relationships that it held before entering that void. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, the I had a commenter on the Laurel, one of the talks I did, maybe the Laurel Canyon talk about Dave's book, and he was saying something to the effect of, oh, you need to look at uh, Chomsky's analysis of uh, Vietnam and that, you know, uh, it was uh, ultimately a success, uh, even though the U.S. quote lost the war. And uh, I'm not—I don't really get into Chomsky. I'm, I'm not really into all that because I think it's, he's kind of a just part of that left-right dialectic. But there, I think that's true because the wars can have many functions. They can have the function of uh, affecting the economy, reorganizing some other. Far off, far off land that's amenable to U.S. business interests. It could be. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Depopulation, perhaps. Um, the, all of those things could be part of war, but they also have, I think, as Alan Watts pointed out many times, the effect of radically changing the existing culture in the U.S. or the West uh, in, a, in an immensely sped up fashion. 
And so you can accomplish much more in wartime than you can in so-called peacetime, even though that's kind of a scam because we're always in a perpetual war state. There's always a perpetual bogus threat. But absolutely, uh, the 80s war movies, and that's actually something that we're going to dive into next because I saw a connection between uh, what Dave writes about in Program to Kill uh, with the Phoenix program and the rise of the so-called serial killers and all that, that you see that in the in movies like Apocalypse Now. Uh, and you know, there, there's another story of another uh, movie that has the mythology of uh, Martin Sheen at, was actually on acid is the story, right? In the scene where he goes nuts and flips out on acid and supposedly he was really on. So there's some more marketing about them. But anyway, yeah, I've, and I've seen uh, most of those movies that you mentioned, Deer Hunter and so forth. And uh, then we had, you know, the nineties ones, platoon and those kinds of things too. And yes, what this does, it it wasn't that the U S lost Vietnam. It gained uh, another stage of social engineering in the U S it also gained a tremendous drug uh, ramp up with uh, the drug uh, pipelines, Silk Road, and then the the other ones. There, there's many of these famous drug lines that go back like a, you know 200 years back to the British Empire, the Silk Road, and so forth. And so uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, all the, the all of these relate to heroin, drugs, opium, social engineering. It's it's always this actually the same plan, and it's go ahead. And it put a. Gap between generations because yeah. then it was the children who were against the war versus the parents who were more traditional who mm-hmm. had fought in World War Two and thought that war was always for a, a justice. Right, right, and exactly, yeah. And right. uh, Vietnam also ties into MK Ultra in the sense that a lot of the soldiers coming back uh, were not. We, we know about the Phoenix program, but uh, this also ties into drug use through uh, the hallucinogens, right? So a lot of it's drugs, a lot of it's black markets. And I think this is roughly illustrated in a decent way in Adrian Lin's film, Jacob's Ladder, right? Because uh, Tim Robbins plays the Vietnam vet who uh, is suffering all of these flashbacks and he doesn't know what's happened to him. And it's because he was actually part of, <laughs> part of MKUltra. Uh, and I think that that did happen. Uh, I'm not saying that they were trying to create the Tim Robbins super assassin, but what I'm saying is that they would, they will, the, the first people that will be used for testing, just like they do it now with the implantable microchips, though they've done this with guys who were in desert storm. Uh, I've heard soldiers say that they were desert storm guys were some of the first guys to be implanted with microchips microchipping that actually comes out of mk ultra that's part of the electrodes and all that uh experimental uh drugs in terms of neuro enhancers uh darpa's work with um, biometrics and all that that's all desert storm and uh operation iraqi freedom right there were soldiers involved in those programs and those are just extensions of mk ultra and so Vietnam and the soldiers involved in those levels of testing and psyops, those were also just different phases in what's roughly called MKUltra, but we don't have to use that. It's just the Pentagon's mind control program is all it is. Yeah. Um, Adrian, Adrian Lynn made another MKUltra movie. It was called Flashdance. 
Um, <laughs> no, but speak, speaking of uh, MK Ultra, I've actually got a copy of Steps to an Ecology of Mind by Gregory Bateson here. Uh-huh. And uh, Jamie brought up the generation gap, which, of course, his wife, Margaret Mead, is famous for writing the book, uh, The Generation Gap. Yeah. And um, there's an interesting quote here in this uh, with a chapter with a very interesting title. It's called Social Planning and the Concept of, of Deutero-Learning. He says, I have italicized a parenthesis in footnote five, which prefigures the concept of the double bind. Dr. Mead writes, of course, that's his wife, but he's referring her to her in the professional sense. Dr. Mead writes, those students who have devoted themselves to studying cultures as wholes, as systems of dynamic equilibrium, can make the following contributions. Implement plans for altering our present culture by recognizing the importance of including the social scientist within his experimental material and by recognizing that by working towards defined ends, we commit ourselves to the manipulation of persons and therefore to the negation of democracy. Only by working in terms of values which are limited to defining a direction is it possible for us to use scientific methods in the control of the process without the negation of the moral autonomy of the human spirit. Okay. Now, if you couple that with one of uh, Mr. Bateson's colleagues, uh, Jules Henry, he wrote a book called Culture Against Man. He says on page 31, in our own culture, there is no group that deserves more recognition and hence a position among the elite than the scientists and engineers. They are the central power from which emanate the new technical ideas and industrial products so necessary to the continuation of our culture. Insofar as they are able to expand the array of lethal weapons so necessary to a warlike people they are, in the truest sense, cultural maximizers. Okay, so these are books written for elitists, among elitist scientists, social engineers. Um, the rock star doesn't have anything to do with actually engineering culture. Um, now, so did you? No, that's not true. Did you know that? Bertrand Russell actually cites in his footnotes twenty over twenty times Katy Perry. <laughs> yeah. When when yeah. Uh, when jo when Jonas Salk was writing about inoculations and he mentioned toxic, he's citing uh, Britney Spears' toxic song. Did Jonas Salk? He was one of the Jonas Brothers, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so the cultural engineers, you know, that's another thing, too, is, like, I wanted to bring this up. Um, uh, actually, I heard Jamie uh, on a call from a long time ago uh, talking about how um, Elizabeth Montgomery wore a specific type of heel on Bewitched uh, because the size of the heel made, like, her legs and behind more appealing. Yeah. And, um, uh, oh, uh, let me finish and then I'll let you go, Jenny. Um, okay. so the, uh, so the other thing that was going on at the time is we kind of look at these, you know, cultural 
these counterculture figures as having the most impact of the time. But if you go back and look at all those old magazines, Time, Newsweek, Life, uh, Look, and then you look at television shows like Bewitched or um, Gilligan's Island or whatever, the culture that the average person, the person who wasn't a long-haired hippie, they had all of those um, changes built into the stuff that people were normally doing not going out in the grass field and starting a commune. It was already built into the pe- the culture that people had become, that had become normalized television and clothing and hairstyles and all that stuff had become more permissive just in the normal sense, not even just like, Oh, you know, there's naked chicks dancing at, you know, a doors concert. It was that the stuff that the average you know, quote unquote, traditional American was engaged in that culture had changed as well. Yeah, I picked up this book by uh, Anton LaVey called Satanic Witch. And that's where I was reading about high heels and his affinity for the three inch spike heel. And um, so this is a book teaching women how to manipulate men and other women uh, to get what you want by using your sexuality. And the type of woman he is describing in this book, I saw uh, almost word for word, is uh, the girls in Sex in the City. Yeah. Who are always you know, wearing their Manolo Blahnik shoes, and uh, they're very um, materialistic and anti uh, traditional feminism. They got that Gucci bag. They got yeah. that Gucci bag. And there was even <laughs> one episode where she, uh, you find out she keeps shoes in the oven because she doesn't even cook, you know, so she doesn't do any kind of <laughs> <laughs> nurturing or uh, feminine activities like cooking and uh, homekeeping and child raising or anything like that. And so I thought that this these girls from Sex and the City were like the epitome of the satanic witches. Well, one of the great points that Jamie's made, too, in her books that I didn't notice, you know, focusing so much on film, is that the it's the point that John's making, I think, is that the alterations in the culture don't always come from these, you know, rabid, revolutionary, uh, radical presentations. It's subtle things like board games or children's toys or high heels. These kinds of things are very subtle changes that kind of, you know, it's like death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's like all of these things add up to, you know, big changes that seem subtle and gradual. Uh, But, you know, like Jamie's saying, sex in the city is the perfect incarnation of what Anton LaVey is talking about with bitchcraft, basically. And at the very end of that show, uh, she has the... um she has the big monster wedding, right? Which Jamie talks about too. She has a big monster wedding. And that's what it was all about was having that huge wedding, uh, you know, that cost, you know, $200,000 or something. That's what, that's what getting married is all about is having a big wedding. Well, and didn't she end up running out on that one or he ran out on her? Or she got left or something like that. It, it, it didn't even happen. <laughs> I've never seen the show, thank, yeah. thankfully. I've and seen I some will, of them. I don't, so I don't know what's but, going on. Yeah, you're right about that whole the wedding industry and the whole fairy tale uh, relationship is uh, pretty detrimental to the men and women. Um, you know, the battle of the sexes, right? 
This is a, a what's, the, what's the what's the little euphemism they use for the um I can't remember it's put them on mind. Um Bridezilla. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a show. Yeah. So my super sweet sixteen is the mini version and then when they grew up they're a bridezilla. Yeah, see you have shows that, that you're able to follow along with and chart as you progress through the mind control uh Wash, brainwashing machine. Well, first you got toddlers and tiaras, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is an abomination of an idea, right? Uh, sexualizing little girls. And then these princess program girls grow up and they're the, the monsters you see on My Super Sweet 16. And then they just grow up to be the girls you see on Bridezilla and Real Housewives, which. And, but the majority of what's interesting is that the majority of the people out there are not this way right right? they've they're highlighting a certain lifestyle of you know fabulously wealthy people as if that's the good life and most of it of course is even still dramatized theatrics for quote reality tv which is all fake uh and so it's it's projecting the idea that the elite lifestyle is this and it's it's being this way and that's how you'll achieve uh, you know, fulfillment or whatever, but it's all designed to wreck you. And it makes Americans seem incredibly shallow mm-hmm. and horrible people. And um, at the same time, it demoralizes real American people when mm-hmm. they go and try and check out at the grocery store and they have to use food stamps and they look over and they see Beyonce just had a hundred million dollar vacation or whatever, you know, that's going to put you in a bad mood to say the least. Hundred million dollar vacation. Well, I'm just giving it an example. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, what was Kanye? What was Kanye's wedding? <laughs> Kanye's wedding. Kanye, Kanye has a, a thirty million dollar wedding or some, yeah. some preposterous number. Yeah, which is probably not true, but still. Yeah, or, or Nicholas Cage they, buying two islands to party, burn one down, and but, so buying. Yeah. Buying a they jack up the price to make it seem more extravagant. I mean, they, they always they've always done this. I mean, all of us, all of us uh, growing up in the '80s know that as time progressed, you know, they always have like more expensive, extravagant things. Is like you know, back in the '80s, like something that cost two million dollars was like, oh my gosh, it cost two million dollars, and now we're up to thirty million dollar weddings. And, you know, they do that on purpose, I think. I think that's all BS. Yeah. But the, um, I I want to bring something up, a little bit of uh, Laurel Canyon lore that uh, uh, Dave didn't put in his book, but um, a lot of people don't know about. And that, um, that's pertained to Miss uh, Jane Fonda. I have a particular fondness uh, for Miss Jane Fonda, because when I saw Cat Baloo when I was about six years old, I thought Jane Fonda was pretty hot back in the 60s. Um, but it's funny. I was reading, um, her book, my life, uh, so far. And I came across this one thing in the, in that book and, um, maybe Jamie might want to go look this up because it's interesting that Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and Jane Fonda all claimed that they were sexually abused by, by someone in the army. There's all separate accounts in different biographies of of these unnamed army people who al- allegedly sexually abuse these people. 
And the Jane Fonda account was a little bit more in detail. It said when she was being babysat by her babysitter, that her boyfriend came over and her boyfriend was in the army and her boyfriend started sexually abusing her. And then she blacked out and she doesn't remember what happened. I'm just saying that's in the book. That's in her book, my life so far, but here's an interesting thing about Miss Jane Fonda that most people might not know uh, besides that. She was the, uh, workout queen of the 1980s. Jane Seymour Fonda was born on December 21st, 1937, New York City, the daughter of actor Henry Fonda and the Canadian-born socialite Francis Ford Brokaw Seymour Fonda. You hear a lot of names in there. Uh, According to her father, their surname came from an Italian ancestor who immigrated to the Netherlands in the 1500s. They're intermarried. And they intermarried and began to use Dutch-given names with James' first Fonda ancestor reaching New York in 1650. She also had English, Scottish, and French ancestry. She was named for the third wife of Henry VIII, Jane Seymour, to whom she is related to on her mother's side. Her actual full name is Lady. Her first name is Lady. Her middle name is Jane. And her last name is Seymour Fonda. And um, it goes on from there that uh, her brother is Peter, an actor and maternal half-sister, Francis de Villiers Brokaw, whose daughter is Pilar Correas, owner of Pilar Correas Gallery in London. Her mother committed suicide while while under treatment at a psychiatric hospital. Now, um, I I can't, I, I wasn't able to find this in time, but I remember reading something too that that the Fondas have some sort of connection to the Rockefellers as well, like on, on the Francis Seymour side, there's uh, some uh, Rockefeller connection. I can't remember uh, what it is, but, um, but yeah, I just uh, wanted to throw that out there. Um, because this is an interesting thing that I brought up on a Chris, uh, on a call with Chris a long time ago. So Jane Seymour or Jane Seymour, um, Jane Fonda, was seen as a feminist icon of the seventies and she's telling around with Gloria Steinem and, and, you know, Angela Davis and all those people. And then she comes into the 1980s, like so many other people did and is involved in this mass consumer, you know, workout video phenomenon. Right. Mm-hmm. And you see all these people of the counterculture actually adapt quite well to the materialistic 1980s, right? And so I'm just giving the example of the Jane Fonda workout video as being this like mass consumer product when these, when Jane Fonda was allegedly supposed to be like a communist and um, siding with the Viet Cong and all the, mm-hmm. all this type of stuff. Here's an interesting, here's an interesting little factoid about, uh, about Jane Fonda workout. Jane Fonda actually didn't, uh, retain her uh, thinness from uh, working out. She actually retained it because it turns out she was anorexic and bulimic the whole time she was on, doing those workout videos. Yeah, probably <laughs> helped. <laughs> Let's get physical. Physical. Who's that? Is that her? So, so her workout videos were basically a scam. Right. Well, uh, that that makes me think that Stop the Insanity Susan Powder might be a scam because she says you can eat all you want. 
and you don't have to work out. <laughs> you remember her? Remember the remember her from the '90s infomercials with the blonde flat top? Yeah, I think I remember it. Like, she yeah, of, co- of course, I, of course. Yeah, so they, these are all kind of Ron Popeil type uh, scamsters. Sham wow, right? It's it's a this is a, a similar methodology, uh, and and yeah, that's a great point too about her. I, I I've made that point many times about people who are communists are always multimillionaires. Uh, if we recall, uh, Nelson Mandela, according to Stephen Dorrell was an MI6 asset. And that's probably why Nelson Mandela has a rather palatial estate townhouse. I guess you have a fancy townhouse in the middle of London. That's not Where very, he probably still lives. That's not very communistic, right? Uh, we, we've talked many times about Fidel. Fidel has a pretty nice pad down there in Cuba. Yeah, if you just have like a couple of, like a portrait of Che Guevara on the wall and that is you're good to go. You, you, you can live in a palatial estate, have some, uh, co- communist, uh, I've never, I've never seen a communist of note, a known famous communist who didn't live pretty high on the hog. And I think that's pretty, it's ironic and it's also absurd and it, and it's telling all at once. Well, I mean, I think it actually kind of fits nicely into the whole communist idea. I mean, isn't it kind of, you know, you have the, uh, you have the, uh, those identified as those that are going to bring about the, uh, you know, populist revolution where everybody's going to share equally, but you have to go through that phase, right, Jay? But that phase never kind of gets, they never seem to get past that phase where everything's kind of consolidated into the few <laughs> hands or where they're supposed exactly. to eventually like turn it over. Well, see, they haven't got there yet, Jay. I mean, they eventually will. They'll, they'll turn it everything over to the people, but it's just, it's, it's, it takes time. Yeah. And then, and then when you bring all these things up, the, it's always, well, it's never been properly enacted. <laughs> we'll we yeah. just yeah. enact, you know, the communist revolution correctly. But oh, those darn capitalist powers always get in the way. But I think what's great about what John was saying about Vietnam and all that is I see these things. If we want to talk about the big scale social engineering, of course, Dave makes the argument that the purpose of the Laurel Canyon scene was to take the steam, a steam valve, take the wind out of the anti-war sentiment, which there's probably a case to be made for that. But if we want to if we want to zoom out and look at the even bigger picture, I think that all of that fits into the plans for convergence and third wave. And that was at least in the from the 40s on to the 70s and 80s. Right. From the CFR archives um, in the 40s, talking about the desire to combine with the Soviet Union to to blend the East and the West. This is where the idea of the third wave comes from convergence all the way up to the writings of Toffler, uh, that you can see then why these big scale global problems, uh, would be presumably answered by the establishment with global government. I mean, that's really what it's all about. So Vietnam, what's it about? It's about global government because it's part of the business phase of moving towards the third, even though third wave, so to speak, is not really that popular in in terms of 
nowadays. I don't think that the, the, the global strategists or, you know, Kissinger and Richard Haas are not going to be talking about the third wave, but it doesn't really matter what words we're using because the, those are really just game plans uh, about that, that are about getting towards the end goal. And the end goal is always the same. I don't like to use the word uh, the, the third wave. What I like to do is to talk about the new world order. That is a need for a new world order. That is, that is my friend Henry. Uh, Henry's plans are absurd. He's a warhawk. If you go with the, the big new Brzezinski plan, we'll find the simple way to the new world order. Wait, wait, is, is this the Charlie Rose show? I thought he was around Charlie Rose. Yeah. Brzezinski, he's like that weird, like... Yes. He's like a weird, like... He, he looks like... He looks like David Bowie and Ella DeGeneres had a baby. Like, yeah. <laughs> he kind of looks like the like an alien, that, like the way that they picture aliens. But, do you remember the... You may, we're all uh, old Alex Jones listeners. Do you remember when Alex used to run the ad for Truth Rising, and he would run it like every five minutes? So every time uh, I think, every time I think of Brzezinski, I think of that ad, and I think of Luke Rudowski from We Are Change calling out Brzezinski, and then the cliff is Brzezinski going, "Sit down and shut up." <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The plan is for Russia to be contained through a proxy war. I do not like the plan of my friend Henry over here. <laughs> Sit down and shut up. Sit down and shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that the one where he's running down the street from the security and all that? He's <laughs> filming it the whole time. Uh, I think that's, that's Kissinger. Kissinger's oh, running away yeah, there's yeah, one where um, Luke Rudowski is running down the street away from security. They're they're trying to they're trying to grab him, and he's running down. The, I, I I don't know. This if that is was this is where he's at a, a lecture. Brzezinski's given a lecture, and Rudowski, I guess, stands up in the middle of it and says, "You know, what about not says you're, says you're scum. Yeah, says you are scum, sir. That was pretty funny." There's a, there was another one where he was given a speech at Columbia University and like the entire audience was we are change people <laughs> and, and, and question after question that people ask, they just keep like, and then he calls them all LaRoucheites. Like he thinks it's all LaRouche people. <laughs> yeah, have you ever seen that clip? No, that sounds great. Uh, there's a, a good one with, I can't remember the guy's name. Name It's Jay something. And I don't really follow the site. It's kind of takes a sort of a leftist, Event. um uh real news i think is it jay something from the real news and uh this guy got an interview with brzezinski i think for like an hour 30 minutes or an hour and they sat down and uh he asked him you know straight up about mujahideen and all that and <laughs> it's worth watching just to see how uh slick and clever brzezinski is at uh, getting around it and turning it around so is pretty much a master of framing the the debate because you think the guy going in. I'm not saying Brzezinski is. I'm not saying he proves the guy wrong. I mean, it's pretty clear that I think you know he's admitted that. Yeah, they had the. the but what he does is he gives this very elaborate uh, dance around answer, and then turns it and asks the interviewer, 
you know, questions. <laughs> the interviewer guy's like, but, but, but. Yeah, I think I've well, seen that uh, one. It's like one of those situations where it's, it, did he answer the question? I don't know. Did, what, I don't did know. He say? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, there was, in that one I was talking about, about the We Are Change, it's pretty funny because after about like the fourth or fifth question, he kind of figures out what's going on. And one of the guys asked him like, okay, well, what about the Bilderberg group? And he said, his answer is, the Bilderberg group drinks blood. That's what they do. They have a meeting where they drink blood together. <laughs> and so he, he like starts being sarcastic to the rest of the questions because he's like, oh, you know, he's all, okay. Look, okay. You LaRouche people. <laughs> Pretty funny. But yeah, the, um, the, you know, the anti-war period of that, you know, coming out of that, uh, coming out of Vietnam um, and into the 1980s, uh, I, I, I discovered something in my research into aerospace, and you guys might think this is uh, pretty interesting, but in, in this book, it talks about something bizarre, and I, I was going to go over this in a future talk, but it talks about how the aerospace industry and the creation of the Internet is the convergence of the conservative and the liberal mindset. Yes. And so it's a very strange thing in this essay. I wrote some notes out of it, but don't have the essay itself handy. But it basically goes into, it says, we needed the conservative mindset for the engineering and the scientific part of, of the aerospace and the creation of the microchip. And that, that the... In so many words, I'm going to speculate on this in a future, like I said, in a future talk, but I'm speculating out that that a lot of the aerospace industry production was a cover for the creation of the Internet. Like they were they were creating stuff and saying, oh, yeah, this is for aerospace, but they were really testing for the Internet. And then they needed the liberal, more freer kind of uh, quasi-liberal libertarian mindset to be able to come up with the uh, extrapolate out with the cybernetics. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was a very interesting thing that I came across. And I, was, I was reading them all. Wow, they, they actually, you know, uh, and this comes out of, this also comes out of the counterculture because, you know, Stuart Brand and the uh, you know, the rest of those well, guys. Yeah, the, a lot of the Silicon Valley people are supposed to be these, you know, acid dripping leftists that are, you know, creatively coming up with this stuff. Right. Right. Allegedly. And, but what, whatever it was, that, that particular idea was, it was at least sold to people who actually, you know, might've been uh, programmers. Like, like we've talked about before, there's a very famous picture in, Life magazine of these uh, of these hippies in a hippie commune, and it's like you know the man's got you know long blonde hair and a beard, and he's sitting around shirtless with his wife and his children, and they say you know um, this is a hippie commune, and um, he he uh, by day he's a computer programmer in Silicon Valley, like. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's what the caption on the picture says. I, I was I was laughing when I saw that. 
And I th- that's kind of what the hipster is today. The hipster represents the sort of postmodern evolution of the social living of the 60s liberal hippie ethos mixed with the tech uh, conservatism of the idea of everything becoming, you know, part of the big grid. You know, that's part of the, that's the guys, complex angle. Do you guys know where the, where the word hipster comes from? I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the talk before. I think I heard you mention it, but no, I, all I was aware of was the kind of the black jazz scene, I think, or the, uh, Beatnik type scene is where the hipster idea first came from, but I don't know about the term. Yeah, the uh, hipster was was an opium smoker because in order to hit the pipe, you had to lay on your hip. Oh, okay. Hmm. And so, once again, you've got the drug culture reference to somebody who's called a hipster today. The the term is actually from the opium dens where you laid on your hip. And oh, so, hit. like Sherlock, like Sherlock Holmes. So that's why they wear that's why they wear plaid and have animal mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so when uh when that became some, when you know jazz musicians started you know uh were opium smokers uh there's actually a very famous uh piano player who called himself harry the hipster and he actually had back in like the 30s and 40s he had novelty songs about drugs hmm. he had he had a song called who P- who put the benzodrine in mrs Mrs. Weber's Ovaltine and who put the, who put the Nembutal in Mr. Weber's overalls. And, uh, and there's all sorts of, uh, like novelty songs from the twenties and thirties that are all about marijuana and heroin use. And, uh, so the drug culture was alive as far back as the 1920s. That's for sure. sure. Just not with, just not with the, uh, psychedelics. Well, yeah, check out those series of documentaries that Sin Cities. And, yeah, you'll be pretty sh- surprised, if you weren't familiar with that, how much debauchery and decadence and stuff was going on in the major Western cities, like in Berlin and, uh, well, Shanghai wouldn't be in a Western city, but it's Shanghai and uh, different places around the world during the 20s and in th- 30s. and. Uh, <laughs> What did John just drop off? Yeah, it makes me a couple quotes that came to mind uh, that I put in the book. And the first one is, quote, the American motion picture is the greatest unconscious carrier of propaganda in the world today. That's from Edward Bernays' book, Propaganda. Mm -hmm. The other quote is from a writer Jeffrey Steinberg, and he says, Bertrand Russell's blunt description of the scientific dictatorship was matched by the account of Aldous Huxley, author of the utopian tract Brave New World, in a speech on the U.S. State Department's Voice of America, CIA Voice of America, in 1961, a world of pharmacologically manipulated slaves living in a concentration camp of the mind, enhanced by propaganda, psychotropic drugs, learning to love their servitude and abandoning all of their will to resist. This Aldous Huxley said is the final revolution. And there you see uh, and that even though Russell, or excuse me, Huxley is saying it in 1961 prior to the revolution, 
Huxley wrote Brave New World, as I've said many times, in 1932, describing what it would be. So all the way back in the 30s, they knew what would happen to get to the stage of, you know, test tube babies and artificial insemination, all that where we're at now. One of the, the bump on the road that you had to, to go through, the business phase you had to go through, is the 60s revolution. And there's Huxley telling you right there that uh, to, to get to the concentration camp, you needed psychotropic drugs to be promoted. Uh, you know, I couldn't think of a better expose of the 60s revolution than one of its engineers. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like the, uh, I've said this before that, um, I think the whole Vietnam war was primarily to change the culture in the United States. Exactly. And that, what, that's what it was. That's why the war was conducted. That's why the war was waged to, um, to bring about all the, uh, subsequent, uh, cultural movements that came out of that. But, uh, that's, you know, you're talking about warfare. It's, it, 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 I think the going to a, a country blowing up their landmarks and all that stuff. Talked about this before, like with Iraq and what they did in Iraq. Uh, they go after cultural centers, cultural icons, uh, statues, uh, landmarks and stuff like that where it gives the people a sense of cohesion, you know, identity and, uh, and belonging, you know, in their community. So they'd like blow up schools, museums, works of art destroyed and stuff like that. And, and I, after I kind of absorbed that information and stuff and I it come to the realization, it's like, yeah, it's that, that is the main, uh, thrust of war is to create, uh, to break down the, identity of the target you know and then create a new market for your target uh niche exactly yeah roll out mcdonald's and hollywood and you've got a new colony yeah and then because you have to wonder like okay well so is this really about because you'll hear maybe like brzezinski talk about it or something like that it's like oh this, the war strategy and stuff like that so we're gonna we have to displace this one group in power or shift the balance of power so that you know we can have a better uh kind of foothold in the area or uh, uh establish a, a better relation uh, working relationship it's like well no it's um it is about the cult creating that um it, it injecting the the weaponized culture into that area because that was a, you know, Iraq being uh, relatively prosperous in that area, having a lot of influence on the surrounding, you know, Middle Eastern, the, all that whole region there. Cause that's the way they, the way they described it. It's like, it was a uh, uh, really uh, prosperous and there was a lot of educational centers there and stuff like that. And they uh, spread that out to the rest of the Middle East. So to take that, to take that over, and to shift it over to a more of a westernized, weaponized culture, I think was the main central idea uh, of war or any war. I think that's what the main objective is. But going over there and you know dropping smart bombs down chimneys or whatever they're doing, I think primarily is not 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 uh, only to, to disrupt the infrastructure and the economy and all that, but to um, yeah destroy those cultures 
cultural references in order to prep preparatory phase to bring in the uh, new the or the weaponized culture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, Patrick Henningsen and I had a good talk uh, about that very topic when I had him on because he was uh, in Lebanon trying to go to uh, Aleppo in Syria where the present warfare is going on at this moment. Uh, he didn't he wasn't able to get into uh, he was going to try to go to Damascus, but he, he wasn't able to get there and was in Lebanon. But he could get, I get a, I guess, a better feel for uh, what's happening in Syria, and to understand that situation, uh, and you can also uh, get a good idea from the interview that I did with uh, Nina, Nina Kuprianova, uh, who's a, a very good geopolitical analyst, and it, so a lot of factors come into this. And you're absolutely right that that's the long term strategy, but that's also you can also understand how the the so called jihad fits into it because. The support for the jihad uh, is at the behest, I believe, pretty clearly of uh, Western intelligence agencies. And the reason they're supporting the jihad is because they're what you're talking about is the older Arab nationalism that's somewhat secular. So you have Syria, uh, Saddam and Iraq. This would be Ba'athist Party. And these are people who have a uh, more or less modern Western view uh, where you have uh, freedom of religion and things like this. There's churches in Syria. There, there are uh, Chaldean Christians in uh, Iraq, for example. And then, so what do you need to reorganize that? Well, you need something antithetical to that, which would be the jihad. So you hype up the jihad, and then they come in to take over you know, factories and, and industry in the north of Syria. And that's all done underhand deals for different oil companies and uh, Erdogan and so forth in Turkey. And everybody kind of knows this, which is what's amazing. And so people in the EU, uh, Turkey, a lot of people are aware of this, uh, but it still just goes on because in America, especially, you know, the media presents to us all of these literally staged news stories that picture Assad as the uh, villain who's uh, killing his own people. The CIA still runs the story of Assad murdering all of his own people, which is completely not true. And uh, CNN and the BBC were both caught making up this story. And that's not to say that the existing uh, Arab nationalist governments are, quote, good. It's just the point that when the business phase wants to move to its next stage, uh, it requires removing all the existing culture. So even the absurdity of it is, is that there's even a relatively free situation in Syria. Like you, you could be, this is not a, this is not Saudi Arabia, right? Syria is very different from Saudi Arabia. Like you, you could be there and go to church. If you're in Saudi Arabia, you can't go to church. There's no churches in Saudi Arabia. So uh, the irony is that the West wants the jihad to uh, move Syria out of the older CIA plan of Arab nationalism, which it was Miles Copeland who went and, um, through the CIA basically helped set up the Arab nationalist governments there. And now the phase is to move the jihadis in uh, to topple that and then move it into the next phase, right? Which this will mean all of the abortion, women's rights and all that, vaccines, Bridezilla. Uh, edu- new education, bridezillas, all the stuff that the relatively secular Assad government didn't want. 
well, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, but originally, yeah, like you said, I agree. It's something that uh, was a construct that was set up originally by, you know, Western powers or what have you for a certain, for a certain uh, agenda. And then when that phase is over, yeah, like a, it's, yeah, like a business plan, you, mm-hmm. you wipe, you kind of wipe the slate clean and you come in with something else. Quickest way to do that is, uh, you know, warfare. So you go in and, and literally obliterate the uh, existing infrastructures and cultural reference points. And then uh, that, I, I don't. I, yeah, it's think about it like taking over, like a business strategy of taking over a rival. Uh, and I'm, that doesn't mean that the, the rivals are. Uh, quote good or bad. It's not a question of good or bad in geopolitics. It's just real politics. It's what's real. And if there's uh, an area where, uh, you know, BP or some interest that Warren Buffett owns wants a pipeline that will go through Syria to Europe, uh, through Turkey, then the Western uh, power elite want that. They don't want. They would not want Russia or Gazprom to have that pipeline. And so, while I'm not saying that geopolitics isn't theater, it is a lot of theater. You also have to understand that, yeah, there are real companies that want to put something somewhere that another company doesn't want. Uh, it's just like in a local town, you know, Walmart will come in and put your family chain of uh, you know five retail stores out of business. They, they will do that. <laughs> they, yeah, really, they did it here. Yeah, definitely. And it happens on a bigger scale with, you know, with companies that s- simply by the fact that uh, there's oil, for example, is tied to different areas. So you have to pipe it out and get it to another place. And, you know, the who's going to supply Europe with energy, things like this. These, these are, I think, real questions. Uh, and there the, a lot of the geopolitical stuff that we see so-called terror attacks and things like these are actually uh, engineered by agencies like the CIA and things like that for at the behest of big business interests. And that's what it's about. Well, yeah, definitely. It's um, the, but people will point that out is that that is sort of the end strategy yeah, is to they'll, they'll stop with that right yeah uh, it, yeah and then it's shareholders concerns and it's the entrenched power base and the lobbyists that lobby congress that drive all of this and it's mainly for the concern of pro- war profiteering or and then yeah that's where it stops but um no i think that's an important component of the whole thing because it's there's there's got to be an, an incentivizer to get people on on to get on people board with yeah, it, yeah. Exactly. And to mobilize people to fight and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think that's our whole system revolves around that. I've said that before where it's, yeah, this, if you can take something and turn it into an industry and it doesn't matter what it is, you know, I mean, we have an abortion industry, you know, it's a, it's, yeah. and then people, you know, their livelihoods are dependent on it. So they'll defend it and make any immoral equivocation that they need to defend it because their, yeah, their livelihood depends on it. And, uh, then, you know, once that gets established, then, um, you know, yeah, people will, uh, then work to, uh, you know, put out 
material propaganda, basically that um, it will, you know, put uh, you know public relations spin on things, and that's that's how the system works. You know, it's public relations is being a huge component because once once you have an industry established, then they hire public relations firms to. Uh, paint whatever it is it doesn't matter what it is they can paint it in a certain light so yeah. you know well it and, makes me think uh, jamie did uh, a lot of research on the notion of war as a, a kind of a form of, of sacrifice for the totem of the flag which you know, is something that you talk about quite a bit i thought she could have some good insights on on war since she read a couple books on that that i thought looked pretty interesting well one thing that a lot of people don't understand about warfare is that it's always been goes hand in hand with occult rituals like going back to Egypt and Babylon and so the Egyptian kings would do rituals where they would have a little uh, microcosm of the war scene the battlefield laid out and they would try and uh, do spells over the you know model. the chess pieces or whatever the model and influence the battle and so if you follow all the symbols that go along with war you've got your pentagram and your chevrons and your all the regalia that generals wear and everything this is very um occultic and it has to do with what he was talking about sacrificing um children for the better um of the empire and uh, the state and you have instead of dying for a god or a king now we die for the totem of the flag yeah exactly so the irony i think is that you know, we, people think we live in, a, in an uh, irreligious era, and I guess in one sense we do, depending on how you define that term. But in another sense, everybody just goes off, marches off, and dies for the flag uh, as a kind of self-human sacrifice without even thinking about it. It's still human sacrifice, regardless of the occult trappings or not. Well, and they're shamed into it by their friends and neighbors. You know, yeah. if everyone else has their boys going off to war and you refuse to let you yourself. You coward, you coward. Yep, you know. you're anti-American and... Um, you're you know, sports trip. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's, that is uh, directly parallel to you know, like the uh, ancient practice of uh, sacrificing children to idols and stuff like that. It's, I, I don't... I don't see how there's that big of a difference. I mean, you have it, it's just carried off into uh, another kind of level of abstraction where well, the, right, well, the new god is freedom and well, democracy. And you have to die right, for right. freedom and democracy. Well, have we ever been invaded since the you know Revolutionary no, War? Never. So people aren't dying for you know protecting their land and their family from invaders. They're going out and empire building on conquest. Well, Chris, you would. Uh, I, I would assume have uh, from your naval stint. I, I, you could correct me if I'm wrong on this because I, I, I don't know. Anything. My dad was in the Navy, but beyond that, I'm not that up on it. But I read a Navy guy's essay a couple of years ago, and he was saying that it's completely ridiculous from the way that the U.S. is laid out geographically, geopolitically, to think that it could be invaded, it would—it's like the most difficult <laughs> uh, place to invade ever. Uh, and so the very idea that it could even be invaded is preposterous. Uh, but yet, that's of course thrown out the window in terms of all the propaganda and fear—not so much of foreign invasion, uh, but the propaganda of uh, you know, oh, we're going to be overrun by ISIS, which is utterly ridiculous. There's no ISIS in America. 
or the idea of uh, back in the 80s when they were hyping up Red Dawn with the, the commie invasion from Canada and Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why you need things like 9-11. Yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely. Like it, it, it is so totally dependent on that. It's that there's, there's just no way around it because it, it, it legitimizes the whole state apparatus and all the uh, war machinery and all that. I mean, they, they have to have some kind of, uh, narrative to, allow or accommodate all this there's just no way around it so yeah it absolutely is a is a is something that is always has been and i try to you know always point this out it's like this has always been the case there's not ever been a case in the so-called history of so-called america where that has not been the case well i'd like to get your thoughts on cuba because uh, i got into that discussion with tim kelly uh, because, you know, this was hyped up during the Cold War with this purported threat of the Soviets putting ICBMs in Cuba. And, oh, you know, we're in danger because they're just right down there and they can launch these missiles and blow us all up. And JFK is going to save us by these, you know, midnight hour conversations on the red telephone and all this <laughs> baloney that's put in the movies. And, uh, you know, the same thought you had occurred to me, too, that, well, Frickin' Guantanamo Bay is right there in the middle of Cuba on the south uh, shore. That in, its, that in itself doesn't make any sense. Yeah, an American military base on Cuba, yeah. No, I mean, it, um, it, yeah, it doesn't, uh, how do you reconcile that? It isn't, it isn't it supposed to be still communist today? Yeah. Right? Still communist. And we got yeah, a military base there on communist soil and uh right right so no and it, yeah it's just it's like what i bring up a lot is just you have you could be presented with two two totally disconnected concepts and nobody questions it and uh well uh, yeah the whole yeah, Cuban Missile Crisis and all that. I pointed out I mean, that 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 whole thing to me. I I just I thought was just totally nonsensical because from what I understand the with the um, the nuclear arsenal, mm-hmm. so Russia has nukes. Okay, so what would be the difference if they now? So supposedly the strategy would be okay first strike capability so that we could take out america before they have a chance to retaliate but um the but the the idea that they could sneak those missiles onto into cuba and position <laughs> them and everything is just that, it's absolutely ridiculous man i mean and, and on top of that if if the cold war the commies were such a threat, and after the wall fell, uh, why haven't we gone and gotten Castro? Right now, the mythology is that the CIA tried all these dozens of times to assassinate Castro with exploding cigars and <laughs> exploding conch shells. I'm not joking, that's what they say. Uh, but they just never could get that darn rat bastard, right? Right. Uh, yet Chevy Chase can hang out with him and stuff like that. I mean, come on, this is utterly ridiculous, right? Uh, it's no different than. Dennis Rahman going and hanging out with Kim Jong-un and we just can't get that dang rat commie bastard. Right. 
Right. Uh, yeah. But now supposedly <clears throat> they're still villains, but uh, with the only reason we didn't get them is because they had the ICBMs and they could have got us if we went after them. I mean, this is a little bitty patch of land. There's a base right there. They could easily take over this little bitty island. Well, it, did you see that article I posted about the uh, Satan two missile that Russia has? <laughs> yeah. I did. Uh, you think yeah, they I, named that? You think they named it that as a psyop? <laughs> well, yeah, right. I mean, the name itself tells you that it's like just total bullshit. And uh, I meant to send you. I didn't get a chance. I think that article that you posted was from the Mirror. The Mirror is the most ridiculous propaganda tabloid out of the UK. And of course, all those UK tabloids are all run by the intelligence agencies. But the, uh, the <laughs> I saw an article from uh, the Mirror right after your your article on the Satan two that was uh, astronaut takes selfie in I'm not joking in a space station wearing Star Trek outfit. So one of the astronauts, quote unquote, takes a selfie, supposedly floating in the space station out there uh, in a Star Trek outfit. And I got to thinking about that. And I was like, wait a minute. She's wearing a Star Trek outfit because everything that NASA is saying, it's, it's Star Trek, right? It's fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it- it's uh revelation of the method or whatever. Or it's just like, a, you know, yeah, it's uh well, there was a TV show that had a scene where one of the characters in the television show went on to the international space station. <laughs> and it, it's, it looks just like he's in the international space station. Right. I mean, he's floating in zero gravity and on and on. And, and, and it, it, it looks Identical. I mean, how did, would you distinguish that from what you're seeing on uh, coming out of NASA? You really can't. And it's like, well, they're not claiming that they actually sent a, uh, an actor to the real International Space Station. They didn't do it in the vomit comet either. <laughs> they did it in a studio. <laughs> it reminds me, too, I was a couple of years ago, there was all over CNN and, and mainstream media the Chinese space program uh, launched their astronauts and then the, the astronauts came back to earth. And I, for whatever reason, I was just screwing around on the internet. I, I watched all of that intently. I followed it for several hours and it all looked completely fake, literally. Uh, so what I'm getting at is this the same scam uh, with other so-called uh, space programs. Uh, the astronauts in, from the Chinese launch uh, are never shown actually being in space. What they have, they have is a, a computer generated mock-up as usual. And then the f- AP photos, always the AP, the AP photos show the uh, astronauts getting out of a, a, what looks like a basketball, like a big basketball that they <laughs> climb out of. Uh, there's n- nothing about this that, that even looks remotely real. Uh, so, we're starting to see a pattern here right, with the, you know, the, the North Korean space program and their disco ball satellite uh, sound studio stage set uh, nuke program that they've got, right? Yeah. That the AP took all the photos of starting to see a pattern here that, uh, you know, it's not looking, not looking authentic. 
well, no, none of that looks authentic at all. And uh, it, it looks quite ridiculous. It looks like a B, a, B, a B movie set. Yeah. And it, yeah, yeah. The, the, we were talking about that before with how movies like motion pictures are coming out of the Hollywood. They put a lot more effort to fleshing them out and making them, making everything <laughs> kind of look realistic. But the stuff that's supposedly real that's coming out of Korea and stuff like that just looks sort of just hacked like a hack job like we got you know we found some stuff at a it's like ed sale it's like, it's like is ed wood working for everybody's space program <laughs> yeah like we found some stuff at a swap meet like it's sort of like out, <laughs> outmoded computer stuff we're gonna put this in here and yeah not really go big budget on it just and now, chris i'm curious when, when you're in the navy did you study any uh like uh, battle strategies or, or naval principles of warfare and famous Navy battles. Did you do any of that kind of stuff? <laughs> no, uh, no. Cause I wanted to ask you if, uh, <laughs> the U S is subject to uh, invasion. Well, if, if, if that is the, you know, that's what we're have the military for. I mean, you wouldn't know it. I mean, why would we have bases all over the planet mm-hmm. if if that's what the if it's you know the Department of Defense is what it's called? Yeah, you know, it's just yeah, it's just nonsensical. I mean, it's a yeah the, the the idea that America would be evaded, or you know, the idea of this terrorist threat. I mean, if you think yes, this through yeah. for a minute, yeah, and I've and I've brought this up several times, and I don't know why nobody else kind of latches on to it because. It seemed like a simple matter. Okay, so you could come across the border fairly easily. I, I was actually down. It was just years ago. I was in uh, uh, El Paso, and I was walking around. I was going back and forth across the border a couple times and whatnot. And then I'm I'm walking along. I just came through the 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 uh, what you call it the uh, entry point, and um, so I, I look down and there's sort of like this over, I'm on this overpass and I'm looking down and there's like a freeway going underneath stuff. There's like all these chain link fences. And I see these two dudes like walk up and there's like a hole in the fence and they just walk right through and walk into the, and they're like, I don't know how many feet from the, uh, the border patrol and everybody. And they, they just stroll right through and, and okay. So you have that. And, and I'm sure other areas all down through the border are just so, unbelievably porous you just walk right through and nobody's going to even notice so you have that situation where you know so this potential for this isis or al-qaeda or whatever is going to could just you know stroll right across the border with you know carrying anything they want or even drive a truck they could drive it four-wheel drive or whatever through the desert into the across the border into the country you know hijack a tanker truck full of fuel and drive it into just about any government building or anything that they want to do, like who would stop them? You know, how hard would it be to do that? It'd be absolutely just uh, child's play basically to do something like that. Nobody, nobody brings that up as a, uh, a, a potential threat or anything. It's yeah. just absolutely just no mention of that. Um, any contingency for anything like that or anything resembling that. And I'm like, well, that is that should tell anybody that's thinking about this at all critically that the, there is no real terrorist threat. But yeah. you know, okay, let's say if that was you know uh, that that was carried out by uh, this the, you know these terrorist groups, 
what would they gain from that? I mean, what would be the um, overall benefit to their cause other than to bring more uh, military action against their country of origin or whatever it happens to be? There would be absolutely no gain in doing something like that. I mean, there would it would just... This, this whole idea of this terrorist threat, uh, as far as like, I'm concerned, like strategically, like what what sense would it make to 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 do something like that to come in and attack a civilian target, and then for what you know, what would be the goal? Well, what I want to know is why can you get on the internet and find a map of the so-called terrorist training camps that are all embedded throughout the United States. But as soon as somebody tries to collect some rainwater that, you know, the authorities all are all over him, but they can't figure out how to stop terrorist training. <laughs> yeah. They look at people's swimming pools and, uh, I was talking to my buddy about it. They look at, look at your swimming pool and see if it's dirty from the satellites and then send a They send a dude to his house. Yeah, but they can't find Bin Laden, right? <laughs> not if he's in the swimming pool. Oh, yeah. Well, if he's if he's not in the swimming pool, they can't find. Him. But it, yeah, I know it's it's absolutely ridiculous. It, yeah. Well, you made a great no. point on the uh, call last night. The the point you made that uh, where were all the terror jihad attacks prior to the Cold War? Right. In other words, so suddenly after the Cold War, all the jihadis want to fight the West, where was the, did they not hate our freedoms before 1950s? I would think that they would hate our freedoms more because it was a more kind of prosperous era. A lot, a lot of, a lot to hate on, you know, mm-hmm. got our big fancy. Oh, yeah. Fancy anybody who says they hate our freedoms is, is, is just idiotic. Uh, Saudi Arabia has absolutely uh, no quote Western American freedoms, and is one hundred percent best buddies with the United States and England. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It no, it doesn't follow any kind of coherent logic. Doesn't have to. Yeah, it doesn't have to. Right? It doesn't have to. That's what we we're talking about with. Uh, oh well, you know a lot. You know a lot of the stuff that's promoted out there. It doesn't have to follow any kind of consistent logic. It doesn't have to. Um, be coherent even. It just has to be from a certain source and that establishes it as a fact. Well, I think uh, it, it, Goebbels or Himmler, Goering, one of those guys, has the often quoted statement that you know, propaganda needs to be utterly dumbed down, simple, and ridiculous even. It's, it's something yeah. to that effect is the quote. And that's because you don't want people thinking about it. You you want it to be a little uh, over the top uh, because that's the best way to, you know, spread your idea virally through a fifth to sixth grade reading level public. Yeah, it has to be really simplistic and straightforward and, and uh, black and white thinking just... The, we don't the we don't negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, we don't negotiate. <laughs> or you're you're with us, or you're with the terrorists, <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> so yeah, what even does that mean? You don't have to really flesh it out. You just well, Chris, I'll tell you why. Uh, what motivates them? 
It's 70 virgins. Okay, that's why. You want to understand terror, you don't understand 70 virgins. They yeah, didn't they tell you it was going to be male virgins, though. <laughs> Playing magic cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, what we're always told. But is that really something that's a thing? No, I've met plenty of... I'm, I'm not at all pro-Islam. Uh, you go out into the world, you're going to meet Muslim persons, and you discover that they have as many divisions and sects as Christians and Protestants have. Uh, I mean, it's just utterly ridiculous to assume that, that it's all the exact same. It's not. Uh, that's why there's Arab nationalism, there's secular Muslims, there's... I'm not taking a side on any of those. I don't, I'm not into Islam at all, but, uh, it's no different than it is religiously in America. Right. And you have fundamentalist evangelicals, you have radical versions of anything. So to assume that it operates as this monolithic entity is also very naive in terms of geopolitics because, uh, Sunnis and Shia hate each other more than anybody else. That's why Iran and Iraq had wars. They don't like each other. Mm -hmm. That's probably like a real thing, right? I mean, that's not uh, manufactured. But then it's used and co-opted to uh, for for whatever agenda that's being pushed. Right? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. It's for for the clash of civilizations, which is you know an explicit book. There's books out there about it. You know, Samuel Huntington, I have Huntington's book, Clash of Civilizations. And uh, Bernard Lewis before him coined the term. So uh, that's the strategy. It's openly admitted and talked about. And what better way to get a convergence, right? So uh, people talk about the refugees, so, so-called migration into Europe on the part of Syrians. Well, if Western-supported ISIS hadn't been bombing Syria, then they might not have uh, refugees going to Europe which causes the problem of the right-wing reaction in Europe, the alt-right crowd saying that everybody who comes to Europe from Syria are terrorists. Uh, No, it's the establishment government and the NATO-supported, Turkey-supported ISIS that are the terrorists, and that's why the terror staged, is because the displacement of the populations reorganizes everybody's society. Uh, Ultimately, again, it's it's ultimately for global government. It's not hard to figure out. These are all stages towards global government. Well, yeah. And, uh, I, well, I, I mean, I've said this before. I don't think that, um, there is really in reality, uh, all these, uh, these nations, because, you know, you brought this up for several times about the, uh, well, Iraq and Iran and the way that they're, currently on the map you know that was all a construct of british empire absolutely colonialism and all that (laughs) all the gcc countries uh, bahrain kuwait uh maybe kuwait's not one of those but uh united arab emirates right those are all british creations um yeah exactly so that what whatever phase that we're going through now i think has to do with these uh internal these internal uh, warring factions and stuff that are uh, being kind of 
reposition and re oh, all all this stuff is kind of being um uh, kind of given a given a makeover given a workover where it's <laughs> it's, it's just uh yeah it's another phase of the business plan but yeah it doesn't mean i don't think that any of this can uh lead to the conclusion that when you're talking about iran or iraq you're talking about um or even north korea even north korea i don't think that there's any such thing as a is as a nation state that exists on the planet currently that is uh autonomous outside of the greater uh uh world system or the global trade system or anything like yeah, that that's, so yeah. that they're independent they're not we, independent exactly we've moved into the phase of the integration and globalization by design where it's almost impossible to to be that way uh, where i would pretty much say it is impossible now i think there are genuine people within nations that are uh, that have reaction to globalization and don't want it uh, but the the weakness of those of those people is that they're always generally confined to whatever their nation state is and the problem is that you're up against something global that's already integrated through you know the Bretton Woods system world war 2 bis uh, banking system which includes pretty much every country it's already you know, um, a dollar-based global reserve. That is the currency of the globe, and that is global government, right? And so what you're talking about is the mopping up phases of the older models uh, that are that are needing to be, you know, the, the older end caps of the supermarket are being wiped out to put in the new that's uh, more and more standardized is the point. Yeah, I think it... I think that's mainly characteristic of these groups that are clinging to their uh, religious beliefs and retaining, wanting to retain their uh, their heritage in that respect, where they're resistant to the uh, weaponized culture and they need to be taken down. Exactly. And that would include, I would say, any, quote, traditional form of religion, regardless of whether you like them or don't like them. From the global uh, strategist perspective, those need to be done away with or co-opted or turned into something new, right? So ecumenism plays into that with trying to kind of water it all down into the same big sludge or you've got radicalization, which um, can be used to make groups look bad. Uh, We've talked before about uh, Westboro Baptist Church. That's obviously a, a fake thing. And that gives the impression that, you know, everybody, quote, evangelical is, uh, you know, like Fred Phelps or something like that. And then Islam gives the impression that uh, everybody of that view is this kind of radical, suicidal jihadi. And that dialectically promotes atheism, which is a means of wiping away uh, previously existing traditions, regardless of whether they're good or bad. It's just a. yeah, means to an end. They're, they're viewed as tools. And if you can't use the religion as a tool, wipe it away and bring something new that's more amenable to, you know, your business plan. But religions have also have the, the force of uniting people uh, around something that's uh, an authority beyond the state. And that's the problem for the state or the corporate state or the, or the corporation because they, uh, in sort of their own impetus, they own, their own 
nature of the beast is to is to expand and become international to dominate and you can't have firewalls uh like tribes nation states uh, families these are all things that that uh, stand in the way of more and more and more standardization uh and power i mean it's you know it's pretty simple power politics there but if you think about it those things operate as firewalls even nation states uh whether you Again, it's not, I'm not saying that the, that the, the state is good or the nation state is, uh, you know, a lot of these things are created, but they, they eventually become firewalls in the sense of uh, if the people develop their own means of doing things and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Their own um, uh, shared tradition, right? A shared experience then those things have to, like, that's what you're saying with the monuments. Those things have to be done away with to bring the new. Because as long as you've got, you know, a, a piece of art in the center of the, of the park of the city, people recognize that as something that's a shared experience they have in their culture. And that has to all be done away with to bring the global culture, which Hollywood is the mean, one of the main means by which that's done. Everybody wants to watch James Bond, even if they're in China they're in Thailand, if they're in uh, Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah, and it's universally popular. You know, a lot of this Hollywood stuff, like you'll have, uh, oh, what was the movie uh, Titanic? And yeah. then I, you look at the in- international gross on that, and it's like, wow, it's, it's pretty... That's why I see, that's why I see America as the beta version of the new world order. America was, uh, the, uh, was the first attempt at the total melting. I mean, yeah, there were empires before, but America is the first global melting pot. That's that was created out of thin air, not based on any shared experience of peoples. And that's why it's the enlightenment experiment. I think it was intentionally, a, a sort of Rosicrucian Masonic enlightenment experiment. And the idea, even from, you know, Bacon's New Atlantis or whatever, is that it's kind of going to be the new, the new super state, the new empire, the new, the new magical Atlantis, basically. Uh, of course, he's talking about science there, not magic. But, um, but then, so what America does is kind of give this image of that, that you can live the American dream and you can be free from any kind of strictures or traditions and all this and live uh, this dream. But now that Americanism has conquered the globe, I think they, they are really ready. I mean, I don't have any timetable or anything, but I mean, you can look at the Rockefeller white papers and all this stuff and they talk about it openly. They they're, they're getting ready. I think in the next 50 years, they're going to move to the next phase. And the next phase is, you know, the continental trading blocks. And that's why things like NAFTA, TTP, these things are the corporate strategies that show us how it's going to be moved into uh, the continental trading blocks and the, the, the World Federation Global Government. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, so you don't, even, you don't need the, the old American mythology anymore. You, you can eventually dispense with that. That was just a, a means to an end anyway. What do you think about China as being the uh, the next global superpower on the scene? 
hard to say because uh, I guess it, we'll have to wait and see what happens with different uh, movements within within countries to oppose globalization. I, th- I mean, even the white papers of the globalists say they expect massive resistance to globalization eventually. So, you know, if, if those, if the opposition isn't ever strong enough, I think you'll see, I mean, I don't really think there will be any one superpower. What you'll have is um, megalopolises, mega cities that will mm. be the new kind of uh, micro super states. So yeah. Singapore, Rio, uh, Atlanta, uh, maybe New York and places like that, older ones, uh, and then Hong Kong, London, Moscow. These are intended to, I'm sure they will still be centers of power, but I don't think that the uh, nation states and the, and the borders will even matter if they even choose to, to keep those up. I mean, they might just dispense with that or or allow people to think that they still, I think that that's kind of how it is now. We, we think we live in nation states, uh, but we're secretly governed by, you know, a shadow shadow corporate banking elite uh, that isn't bound by national boundaries. They're international. Uh, so, you know, externalization of the hierarchy, they may just dispense with all that and try to move. But they have to make, I think, uh, the idea of globalism and global government and all that popular. And it's very difficult to, to make that popular. Um, so I think things like the Internet were released to make that popular ultimately through the idea that, oh, we're all interconnected. We're all part of the same hive mind of the internet. Uh, and that's another important, I think, phase towards that. But yeah, I don't know about how it just depends, you know, it depends on what happens. You know, the, the, the global, it could fail. You could have enough reaction amongst uh, people that realize that this is not good. Um, but that's not, I'm, I'm a little more cynical than that. That's not looking looking uh i don't think enough people are going to quote wake up you know because even when people wake up i mean how what are you going to do how are you going to um you know stop something that's a global juggernaut uh the best way to stop it is to as you point out many times check out of it you know to whatever degree you see uh feasible and fit for you and your your loved ones uh you know stop watching the tv stop that's the that's the how you defeat the new world order is to not be a part of uh, the the lies and the scams and, you know, becoming self-sufficient and all that. Right. I mean, well, you know, to whatever degree you can, because we're, we're going yeah. always into greater and greater interdependency, which is, I think that's the, a lot, it has yeah. a lot to do with bringing all of this, you know, global, maybe over, I think we're already in a global government. Right. Um, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't express itself, you know, overtly so much as it as it does on a practical level. I think on a practical level, it's we're pretty much a global village or a global economy and a global, um, uh, you know, laws and and all that are are sort of becoming more and more unified across the board, at least across the Western world, across Europe and you know, on the United States. They say like you usually. Um, a lot of stuff that gets implemented into Europe will be uh, implemented into the United States, but then it's there's sort of like a maybe five, ten year um, uh, d- differentiation with a, 
say that word right, but anyway, you know what I'm saying? Like we're, so we're already in it to a large extent, but then it's, it's just not, um, Oh, it's not open. I mean, I, I've, I've talked about this too. Didn't they have the, um, they announced the European union, right? And then yeah, and in like the nineties, but it was already decided on at Bilderberg in the uh, late forties. Yeah, then they had the 50th anniversary celebration of the European Union like three <laughs> years after they announced it. Remember that? It was like, yeah, right. yeah. So, yeah, nobody really. When did that get voted? Oh, it doesn't get. Well, it gets voted on in the yeah, like the closed door sessions and all that. But it's not, not something that. Um, I, and I don't, I don't know about these, all the referendums and stuff that are going out where. Oh, you vote. You want to be a part of the European Union, or and I think that's just part of the the, the overall process to give the illusion of uh, there's some kind of decision making among the so called democracies and stuff where you're right, participating right. in that. But I, I don't think any of that is uh, consequential of uh, whatever outcomes come out of it, uh, because I think the way a lot of stuff works is that it can um, uh, be. Uh, sort of underground, where it's like you're not really aware of what what is going on behind the scenes, as far as you know, economies and all that, and how they're integrated. Yeah. Um. Then you know it'll, it, but it'll it, operationally it'll be all everything's intact. But then they can have these, uh, uh you know, mock, uh, <laughs> uh, referendums and all that, where people are you know allegedly voting on on this stuff but it's not yeah it's not gonna have any bearing on uh reality it's but then you know they can back off and say well yeah this, this didn't go through and in the meantime that it had already gone through like you know 10 15 years prior but they just don't openly discuss it you know or yeah i think a lot of a lot of it a lot of it is goes like that where it's just um uh all, 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 all of politics and all that stuff is just theater. And then it's just, it's just, um, if there is like concessions made to the, to the general population, they'll, they'll be temporary until it gets redefined and reintroduced to some other. Yeah. Yeah. Some other way. I think that's the way a lot of this stuff is done where it's, yeah, there's like backup plans that are ready to go for all contingencies basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's... So it uh, doesn't really matter, like, if if, if Brit, the Britons vote to leave the EU, it's, that doesn't really matter. I mean, it's what's going to change in the in the shadow government? <laughs> Nothing. Right. Uh, it is interesting that Osborne, in commenting on the unpopularity of the EU and the people in the UK, he said, all of you people who want to leave think that it's a massive conspiracy theory. <laughs> and he says in that quote, this was like a couple of days ago, he says, uh, George Osborne says, so you all want to leave. And that means, so you actually think it's what he says. He says, you actually think that, uh, your governing class, uh, as well as Obama and the IMF, that they're all in a conspiracy against you. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah, but you don't, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a loaded word. 
oh, the conspiracy word that they could just throw it out there, even though it obviously is a conspiracy by any de- definition of the word. They can just throw the word out there like it's, you know, and then it automatically um, it just renders the opposition at whatever point you're trying to make it just renders it invalid because you're a conspiracy theorist. If you're suggesting uh, that this is uh, done outside of the will of the people, quote unquote, and it's like, no, I mean, it's like obvious. There's no, no really debate about it, but then that's how these people operate. And they just talk out of both sides of their mouth and people are so used to it that they don't really think nothing of it. So they don't ever get really called out on much. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think you're making a great point. Politics is theater for ugly people. Like, uh, Gerald Salente says all the time. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's a scam. It's a game. And I, yeah, I, I always go back to Quigley because he talks about that in his book that, you know, for a hundred years, uh, I'm sure it goes back beyond that, but if, for the purpose of his book, for the 20th century, he's saying for, for at least a hundred years, the, you know, the, the power elite have given you the two party system, Democrat, Republican, uh, uh, Tories versus labor in the UK. You notice the same pattern everywhere. And that's to make you think that, uh, you know, you, you, if you just get in there and get involved and expend all your energy on this process, you can make a change. You can make a difference. How, by focusing all of your time and energy in campaigning for some guy who's, you know, some multimillionaire, multi-billionaire that you'll never, ever meet, as you point out many times that you've never seen except on some screen. And this is going to change. That's all illusory. It's all theater. Uh, and it's, given to you that way so that every four years you'll buy back into it. Yeah. And I think there's a definite ritual aspect to all of it where it's, uh, yeah. Or think about this. Uh, I've heard, people used to say this to me, I haven't voted since two, 2000, no, 98. Yeah. Like whenever that Bush before nine 11 thing happened, that was the last, last time I voted, I think I turned 18 around that time. And, um, I didn't know anything at the time is why I voted, but, uh, I haven't voted since then. And when people ask me this kind of question, they're like, why haven't you voted? I, I, I point out that, uh, they'll always make this derogatory thing, just like, kind of like the, you know, you don't support the troops, you know, you're a coward. You didn't sign up for, I, I did get signed up for the draft by the way, but for the people who do, draft, draft dodge or whatever, stuff like this, the people say you're a coward and stuff. It's the same way with voting. They'll say, you realize what our founding father's dad died to give you that right to vote. I can't believe I've had family members, you know, bitch at me for not voting. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> voting is a scam. Why you, you, you don't have any connection to these so-called founding fathers that you think died for you. They didn't die for you. They died for their own personal interests and they were elite families anyway. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it's all, it's all, yeah it's all mythology. It's just, doesn't, it's just stories about, uh, yeah, these people that lived 200 years ago and then nobody really know. when they say founding fathers, I always think that's interesting how it's, uh, it's, it's your father. So it's this parental, this parental <laughs> sort of relationship. I bet you'll have the, what the government is. Yeah. They'll point in, they'll, they'll look you in the eye and point in your face and they'll say, our founding fathers died for your right to vote. You won't vote. 
<laughs> yeah, I like to shame you. It's like, I, I, I don't know, man. Explain to me, Founding Fathers, so that I can be concerned. I, I That's what I would say. And it's like, now I would say that. I mean, what what are you, oh, Founding Father, what are you talking about? Exactly what are you talking about? Like, what <laughs> do, you, do you have any idea? It's just kind of this, it, you know, you, it, it's... um. Yeah, it's such a it's such a an abstraction. Nobody could put their finger on it. Nobody knows what they're really specifically talking about when they bring these when they bring up these buzz phrases and, and words. It's there. It's like um, it's like a religious mantra or something like that. Where you have like you know maybe a Buddhist or something. They'll sit around and they'll chant and they'll use the same kind of word over and over and over until it puts them into like a fugue state or something where they're disassociated from reality or whatever. And that's like a lot of, a lot of this stuff is, it's, it's just something that's been so repeated over and over throughout your entire life, ever since you were in grade school, that it is, it is like a mantra that really has no real serious meaning attached to it. If you think about it, it, right. it, it, it it's just a, it's just a, sort of a word that through repetition has these associations built up around it that, um, you know, you'll hear about mom, apple pie, Chevrolet, baseball, uh, baseball and America by God. And, and, and it, it's like, well, what does that have to do with any of that or whatever? Do they have apple pie in Europe. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I've checked that out. <laughs> I know they have it. America and, and, is uh, apple pie and pizza. Oh, wait, pizza is not from America. Actually, wait, is pizza American? Yeah. No, I thought it was Greek. Didn't Greeks make pizzas? Not the way that Americans do. Oh, okay. Well, well, crap. Well, we well, America does pizza better than Greeks ever could have. Hey, we got Pizza Hut. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the crowning achievement of all pizza, Pizza Hut. I got I a gross. I got a gross Pizza Hut story. You want to hear that? Uh, I've had a bunch of those too. I worked. I waited. One of my first jobs was waiting tables at Pizza Hut. It was. It was pretty bad. Yeah, I, uh, I was playing video games with my brother, and uh, so somebody, like a family, come in there, and there was a, a toddler that lost all the contents of his diaper right there on the floor. So <laughs> we were completely covered in uh, <laughs> diaper product, walking out of the. Well, it's more organic than pizza. That's huh? more organic than pizza. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it, a toss up, isn't it? Pizza. It's a toss up. What's more appetizing? Yeah, yeah. It'd be yeah. It'd probably be more uh, nutritional content. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Last time I tried to eat a, a, a Pizza Hut piece of pizza, I ate two pieces. This was a couple years ago, and uh, I came home. And by the time I reached my front door, I puked it all up <laughs> right in front of the front door and uh, laid in my bed for about two hours. So, but, but yeah, the, the uh, pepperonis are actually cooked in uh, the garbage juice that comes out of the back dumpster. Oh, and nice. so we're a sustainable company. I learned when we were, I'm not joking, but anyway, I think we're going to have to, uh, head on out. We got some things we got to do, but it's been a great talk, and I want to thank you for having us on. Oh yeah, I enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, we should do it again. And uh, I want to look at you guys as uh, B movie analysis. I was looking forward to looking at that. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Check that out. 
Yeah, there's a lot of good points, and uh, we try to pick some fun, uh, goofy movies that, that actually had some point. Some are better than others for points, yeah. but but anyway, yeah, it's something fun. I like the graphic. I don't, I don't know what that's from, but whatever Ghoulies. that is. Oh, Ghoulies, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the poor man's gremlins. <laughs> All right, thanks, Chris. And uh, yeah, I want to remind everybody, uh, check out uh, Hoaxbusters Call if you're listening to this on my YouTube or podcast. And uh, if you're listening at Chris's site, check out my book, Esoteric Hollywood. It's uh, just saw the final format today. It looks looks really slick. And uh, 364 pages of 404 footnotes, a lot of research, a lot of good stuff there. And uh, you can get that uh, on Amazon now. That is available right now, so you can order it and get a. Uh, well, the, you can order it, but the the book it will be out in four weeks. So you'll get it in four weeks, but but it can be ordered now. Oh, okay. So it's like a pre order. Yeah, you do a pre order. Right on. And then uh, and Jamie's, Jamie's uh, Hollywood Mind Control. You can get that at Jay's analysis. Yeah, is that on Amazon too, or is that uh, get? Yeah, but if if you the way that she does it, it the publisher doesn't get as much, which is her. <laughs> so she 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 only gets like a dollar if you buy it on Amazon. Oh, so, a dollar! Wow. Yeah, so yeah. it helps the author to purchase you know, the book if you choose to through the uh, the links on my site. So okay, cool. Yeah, all right. In my yeah. situation, because I did, I went through a publisher. It, it doesn't really matter. But oh, so it's either way. You, you get the yeah. uh, same. Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah, yeah, I uh, yeah, I recommend that because you, know, you guys are really knowledgeable on uh, you know, stuff we're talking about, and then going into this um, the Hollywood and the occult links stuff, and that's really a lot. I mean, it's it, it's so. And well, kind of understand what's going on to kind of go into that stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, my book's not totally a woo woo book. I, I had to rewrite a lot of the movie analyses. So a significant portion of the book is rewritten. Uh, and a lot of it is, you know, historical connections of, you know, the CIA with Hollywood. A lot of it is there's a whole section, about 20 pages, critiquing scientism and Darwinism through, H.G. Uh, Wells and uh, Spielberg films and the alien mythology. So, I mean, there's a lot of different stuff in there. It's not, it's not all, you know, woo woo cult stuff. Um, that's probably about a fourth of the book, half of the book. But uh, yeah, it's a, a lot of the stuff that, you know, that we talk about, but a lot, a lot of more information that, that, uh, you know, isn't on Jay's analysis is in there. All right. Yeah. That's uh 300 and some odd pages. That's uh that's, yeah, 364, it looks like. Hopefully he won't cut out. Because <laughs> he, he originally planned it a uh, 300-page, and then the manuscript ended up being a lot more. So hopefully I can still get away with uh, 364. But, but I mean, yeah, I, mean, I go through everything in terms of stuff that, you know, we've touched on over the, the last year from you know, Zero Dark Thirty, uh, propaganda films, these big propaganda uh, displays that were shown. Uh, to Argo and uh, Antonio Mendez's book and, uh, you know, all the way back to Kubrick in 2001 and the whole mythos of 
Darwinism being presented, uh, you know, as the kind of the new new religion through two thousand one, you know, all of that. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, and then the all the connections there with you know we talk about the CIA and the culture creators and all that. So you're touching on that too, right? And going into yeah, a section I talk about Franker School, and I'll talk about uh, you know MK Ultra and how that applies to the social sphere and social engineering. Um, David Lynch's films, how he's you know kind of showing in a veiled way how Hollywood works, uh, what the movie industry really is. It's about you know turning girls into porn stars and basically uh, degenerating the culture, you know, all the way back to the shock techniques of Hitchcock that were developed in, uh, in a conjoined relationship with Tavistock and uh, British intelligence and, you know, psychological warfare, social engineering, all of that. It's, that's, this is really an analysis of propaganda and social engineering and psyops is what the book is. And then, uh, of course, on is it audible.com, there's, you're going to have the uh, audio version that's narrated by Paul Craig Roberts. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, I'm presently uh, recording every line in the Paul Craig Roberts voice. There will also be a James Corbett version. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, I don't know if there'll be an audible. I know that uh, he does have a full color Kindle version, uh, there will be a full color Kindle. Uh, and there will be a paperback, so I uh, don't think there's going to be any hardbacks or anything like that, unless it passes on <laughs> into uh, bestseller status or something like that. But who knows? So it's got pictures in it. So uh, yeah, I like. Oh yeah, there's uh, I think about a hundred pictures. So. Yeah. All right, great. All right, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds really interesting. Looking all right, thanks for checking Chris. that out. So yeah, thanks y'all for coming on and uh, enjoyable as always. And all right. You know, hopefully we'll do it again soon. Yeah, we'll talk soon for sure. Have a good night. Good night. All right, cool. Y'all have a good one. Bye.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.